one step closer to the 100th episode of Mitch Unfiltered. Hot shots got across from me. This is episode number 98. Well, clearly the 100 episode thing is keeping you up at night still because you're very stressed about it. I'm stressed because I feel like the Arden audience those that love Mitch Unfiltered are expecting something special (laughs) from us on any episode, let alone 100. So now I feel like I have to deliver something. If you tell me that, Mitch, forget it. Just do the 100th episode like you did 98, 99, 46, 48, then I won't be stressed. Okay. But I kind of feel like there is this underlying expectation Mm. Well, that we are supposed to deliver something special on episode 100, which I don't have anything for you. I got nothing well, for you. As you know, I'm known as an idea guy. That's just what people call <laughs> me around the not. office, you know? Around so, the office. So the day before the show, I'll come up with something good for you. Don't worry. Around the office. By the way, I listened to the last uh, 97P. Oh, you did? And Did you like those three interviews? I did. And I, the guy from NASCAR, well, he's not really oh, a NASCAR guy, but no, he was... No, the guy from Alabama, the columnist he was from great. Alabama. Goodman. Thought, Joseph Goodman. Joseph Goodman. Very good. Down here, yeah. Very good. Was he essentially saying that NASCAR has a big hole to dig out of because of how they started? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That was an interesting take on it. He's very outspoken about the backwards ways yeah. of NASCAR and what they've got to do to get well. And this Bubba Wallace thing just exploded in our faces and i i don't know where you stand now we've seen pictures of yeah was it a noose was it not a noose and they're saying this is the only what do they call it a door handle or a door pull garage pull a guard. this yeah. is the only one that looked like this yeah i know that's what the fbi the fbi saying it's not a noose it was there forever whatever yeah it could have just been somebody messing around i don't know yeah i don't know it's a Seems tough one really the big coincidence that yeah. it happens to be in Bubba Wallace's yeah. garage. I do have some shocking news before we begin episode, where are we, 98. Okay, before you get to that, oh, yes, I, yes. you did prove your point very well when Uh-oh. you were interviewing Mr. Goodman oh. about you not knowing anything about cars when you said, I don't know a NASCAR from an SUV, right? <laughs> because in NASCAR, they're actually called stock cars and they're not called NASCARs. Oh. So you really proved your point. Congratulations. I have, this, <laughs> I have this never-ending <laughs> fear. Mm-hmm. That guests, and I had this on the radio show too, that guests, especially in these areas that I don't know anything about, when I try to do a hockey interview, when I try to do a soccer interview, when I try to do a NASCAR interview, I feel like, okay, the guest is going to hang up the phone and like go to his wife and go, you can't believe what I just spoke to. (laughs) You're usually pretty good though about telling him, look, I'm not a big NASCAR. I try to start, I try to lay the groundwork, the ground, the foundation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. uh, The groundwork, the foundation. Uh, Before we even begin, I say, I'm going to, I'm going to fall back. You catch me. (laughs) So I called it a NASCAR. Yeah, but a lot of people make that mistake. I only know because- It's a stock car. It's a stock car, yeah. Because I worked with petrol heads forever, and yeah. you can't say that on the broadcast. You yeah. have to correct them. That's the only reason I know. After you listen to 97P, what did you think of Novak Djokovic? I think he's Is a- Is he not a knucklehead? He's a maniac. I mean, <laughs> he's just a maniac. <laughs> a maniac. He is. Like, just no regard for any of the, what's going on right now at all, right? Just no regard. Because he doesn't believe any of it. Right. Do you think he believes it now? Now yeah. that he's sick, his wife's sick- all the audience is sick. The ball right. boys are sick. Everybody's sick. Do you think he believes it now? Or does he still, does a guy like that still go, no, this isn't really that serious? I'm waiting to hear him say that he cured himself with his positive energy. Positive energy. Yeah. He purifies water. He yeah. purifies water. Yeah. Novak Djokovic. Yeah, That's yeah. right. I do have some shocking news for you before we begin episode 98. I'm ready. 
this Hotshot Scott and all other shows can be heard just about everywhere that podcasts are found, like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play. And, and let me say, I don't know this for sure. I think I know this, but I'm not sure. Everybody who wants me to teach them how to get the patron episodes over to Spotify, I don't think Spotify participates in that thing. Oh, okay. Whatever I thought, that thing I thought is. an RSS feed was just you could any I don't platform uh, NASCARs, stock yeah. cars. I, what do I know? <laughs> who knows? But I do know this that when I first, when I was first like pushed into the podcast situation, I hired a a consultant in Seattle to get me started. She was great. She helped me get. She helped me get on all these different platforms and so forth. And then she turned to me and she said, you know, you need me. I was in radio for many years. This is her talking. Oh, she was. Yeah. Radio for many years. She was at Cairo, whatever. I was local. I was in New York, whatever. This is not the same as radio. Don't treat the podcast the same. There are different rules, Mitch. You need to know the different rules. Well, judging by how you and I's radio careers both ended, it's a good thing this isn't a radio show, right? <laughs> both shown Did the door. I just get lopped into Hotshot Scott's group? Yeah. Uh, yeah, well. She said... You can never do a podcast. Never. I don't. She said, I don't care if you do 5,000 of them. You have to, on every show, tell everybody to subscribe, to send in a rating, to review. You have to tell everybody that if you're doing the Patreon thing, you got to tell everybody, hey, we have a second show each week for patrons. Okay. It costs five. You have to do this every single show. So you will not find, I don't believe, one of the previous... Maybe that's the way we make 100 special. We don't do any of this. <laughs> <laughs> that's it? <laughs> well, you brought up 5,000. I can't wait for that episode. Oh. Imagine how special 5,000 is oh, going to be. God, thanks a lot. <laughs> I'm going to start freaking out about it right now. So you can subscribe free to Mitch Unfiltered. All you got to do is click the subscribe button and get it delivered to your favorite podcast platform we're available wherever podcasts are found and i love the reviews i read those yeah especially when they're positive positive. <laughs> and I, I think i hear other podcasters talk about sharing it share with people tell oh, a friend oh tell your parents yes. tell a co-worker yes please yeah share please tell everybody that you stumbled on you stumbled upon the nation's number one one-star podcast. That's right. We are the, the best. I, I, I don't know that we're five stars. I don't know whether we're four stars. I do know this, that if we are a one-star podcast, we are the best one-star podcast in the United States of America. Hands down. Yeah. On 97P, you and I were talking about the theme to St. Elmo's Fire. I got to clear something up here. See, I thought you were singing because there was an instrumental. It's like a piano instrumental. Oh yeah, oh, yeah I like that one too. I, that's what I thought you were talking about. That's what I was. I, but then you gave me. But then I gave you the John Parr yeah, Man yeah, in yeah, Motion, yeah, also yeah, from it. Yeah, no, no, but I was. We were on different. I was pages. thinking the love song that's from right. St. Elmo's Fire. I listened back to it and thought, oh yeah. And how does I, that go? I don't know. <laughs> I, 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 well, you know, on episode 100, maybe that'll make it special. <laughs> maybe it will. <laughs> a hearty welcome to the following three people, Judd Boone, Rick Castro, and Ricky Schroeder. And I say Ricky Schroeder only because it's Rick Schroeder, but these are three of the most recent patrons to sign up and pay the $5 a month and get all the extra shows. But when I saw Rick Schroeder, I immediately thought of Ricky Schroeder. Yeah. Do you remember Ricky Schroeder? Come on. Who are you talking to here? Silver Spoons? Yeah, Silver Spoons. But then he, he had an adult career on... He sure did. NYPD he Blue. He was on NYPD something. Blue. Yeah. But what do you... 
Do you, do, is there one show or one movie? See, I think of Ricky Schroeder as a kid in one movie oh. that I remember crying like I've never cried before in a movie. Was it called The Champ? It was called The Champ. Yeah. Look at you. I just remember this him. This was not rehearsed, ladies and gentlemen. He had full video games in his house and a train. No idea. Oh, Silver Spoons. Who was, oh. I was so. Oh, I thought you were talking about The Champ. Well, I am, but I, that's I'm what, segueing to The Champ. I got you, but you asked me what, Who how I remember Who was his father him. in The Champ? And what was the champ about? I assume boxing. Yes, it was about a boxer who was his father. I don't know. I'm just going to guess Mr. Tatum O'Neill. Wait, no. Tatum O'Neill is a no. woman. No, John Voight. Oh, John Voight, okay. Played the father, and there's a scene, I just remember seeing it as a kid. Because I think, I think if we looked him up, we'd find out that Ricky Schroeder and I are about the same age. Okay. I, I have not looked it up. Maybe we'd find he's, he's much younger than me. Maybe. I'll find I, I don't know. But the champ... The champ. There was a scene in the champ where the champ dies. His father okay. dies. Oh wow! On the table after a, after a fight, and he's yelling at him, "Champ, champ!" Oh. He's crying. Oh my god! That's a rough one. And then when I started thinking about that, and I saw Ricky Schroeder, the new patron, I also started thinking about sports tearjerkers. I know we haven't started episode ninety-eight, <laughs> but when you start thinking about the champ, there's three that come to mind, and the champ is one of them. Okay. Three sports movies that made me cry like nobody's business. There's one oh, people always talk about. Yep. It's uh, someone's game or Bobby's world or what is that called? There's one that. Are you thinking of Brian's song? <laughs> <laughs> no, Bobby's world was much better. <laughs> yes, Brian's song. Is that the one you're. I... Bobby's world did not make me cry. <laughs> Well, you haven't seen it lately. It, it holds up, Bobby. Have you world. not seen Brian's song? I don't think I have. Do you know that Brian's song is a true story? I don't know that. Yeah, it's about Brian Piccolo. Do you know who Brian Piccolo is? No, I know Jenny Piccolo. Do you, <laughs> do you, do you know Gail Sayers? I do know that Do you name. know that Gail Sayers had a, had a buddy who was a Chicago Bears running back who died of cancer, died of leukemia at oh, such wow. a young age? was stricken with cancer during their play, playing days. I didn't know it was Brian's about Brian's song is the story of Brian Piccolo. Okay. So yes, the champ and Brian's song. And then there's one other that I think may have made me cry more than any of the other, even Brian's song and, and the champ. Really? There was, a, there was a TV movie. It wasn't even a go to the theater movie. Oh, Bubble Boy. Boy in the Bubble. <laughs> <laughs> is, that a, is that a sports movie? <laughs> Will they take him to the beach? Oh, oh man, heart that is heart wrenching. You only get to see the beach. Why the is it that I confuse John Travolta's Bubble Boy with the Seinfeld episode about Bubble Boy? Oh right, that was right. a Seinfeld yeah, episode. Yeah, yeah. Who's oh man? Did he have attitude? The Bubble Boy and Seinfeld. Oh. <laughs> so there's a he third got under movie. George. He got under George's skin in, in the worst way. Well, I think they were playing Trivial did. Pursuit. Um, a third movie that made you cry more than both of those. It was called. It was a TV movie okay. called Something for Joey. Another story. Another true story. Okay. Another football related story. So, does the name John Capaletti mean anything to you? Football player? Yeah. Heisman Trophy winner. Okay. Penn State running back. I want to say 1973. Okay. I'm Had talking. a little brother with leukemia. Oh, boy. And that's the story. The story of something for Joey is the story of the relationship between John Capaletti and his little brother, Joey, who died of a young age of leukemia. And he dedicated the Heisman, he's, the speech, the famous speech, which they've now re recreated for the movie, but the speech itself is somewhere you can find it where he, he says, this is for you, Joey, oh. his little brother. And his little brother comes to the games. There's nothing that his little brother liked more than going to see his big brother play in the games. There's this famous moment 
and something for Joey when Joey Capaletti is at a Penn State game in the middle of the Heisman Trophy race. And he, it's his birthday, and John says his older brother getting ready to play. He says, what, what can I get you for your birthday? And he says, like, I want five touchdowns. He says, come on, kid. Yeah. He says, no, I want five touchdowns. And so they, he gets the first one, and everybody goes crazy at Penn State, and little Joey doesn't stand up, and he just puts a one finger up. Oh. And then he gets two and three and four. They take him out of the game. They take John Capaletti out of the game with four touchdowns. And somebody go, and maybe this is not even true for all I know. Yeah, whatever. It's a good story. <laughs> somebody goes up to Paterno on the sidelines and says, whispers in his ear after he took him out, hey, we're at the goal line. He promised his brother five touchdowns. Or his brother wants five touchdowns. Joey wants five touchdowns. Yeah. And they put him back in the game, and he scores the fifth. And wow. that's when Joey gets up oh. and cheers. Sounds a, great. Oh. I was going to say it's a killer, but that's not the right Yeah, that's not the right term. Capaletti, uh, 1973 Heisman 1973 Trophy. 1973 Heisman Trophy. Ricky Schroeder is how old? Take a guess. I have his age. The champ. Don't go, champ. Uh, champ. He was a pretty good actor. Go, champ. <laughs> champ. <laughs> so that was his father? Champ. I think John Voight, I don't remember the movie vividly. I just remember Voight was dying. I think it was his father who okay. was the boxer, yeah. Uh, well, I was born in 67, so I think he's right in... Maybe he's a little younger. I'll say 50. He is 50 years old. Look at you. Off to a great start. Ooh, two for two. The band. I'm not allowed to say that. Oh, That's yes, right. I am allowed to say that. <laughs> All right. What else before we start the show? Is there anything else that you want to talk about before we start the show? Piper has a phone and she's loving it. But for- it's not an iPhone. It's not a new iPhone. It's an iPhone. It's an iPhone 7. Yes. In pristine condition. And I'm sure... <laughs> People are you sick. paid 50 bucks for That's right. I'm sure people are sick of hearing about her and her stupid phone. No one yeah. cares. Everyone's kid has a phone. But yeah. she was over the moon. She was over the moon. Did we talk about this on 97P? Yeah, but not everyone's a patron. <laughs> We're trying to get them all over there. Why isn't everybody a patron? But, but I was worried she would be like, mm, iPhone uh, 7. But no, she was happy. She was very happy. We so. had a good selection of guests last week on 97 and 97P. Do you realize, here are the when you take the two shows, mm-hmm. the 97 and the 97P, Piper Soden. Oh, yeah, that's right. Max Levy, Brett Levy, AP Jets reporter on Jamal Adams being traded. One of Len Bias's teammates. That was great, by the way. In college. An elementary school teacher who started making COVID masks out of the UW for the UW, have the UW logo on it, Washington State, anything else. Steve Phillips was great on 97P on the 60 game baseball sprint. Uh, Bubba Wallace, Joseph Goodman on the Bubba Wallace story in Birmingham, Alabama. We had the 60 Minutes reporter on the ridiculous Novak Djokovic story. <laughs> yeah. We, we did pretty well last week, Not I think. Too, is this the part where you say the bar is going to be set lower for the guests on this one? Or are you, you going to say we're going to outdo ourselves? I am. Look at me. Um, do, <laughs> I, I am the picture of confidence when it comes to the guests on this show. Great. That's good news. Especially number one. I mean, all of them. All of them. But number one. Number one, okay. the quarterback of the 1985 Chicago Bears, one of the greatest teams in NFL history, had one of the zaniest, craziest quarterbacks Wow! who I got to know a little bit when I was doing the radio all those years. Uh-huh. He'd come on from time to time. He is on episode 98 telling story after story after story, and it is fantastic. I've been wondering what Mike Tomzak's been up to <laughs> the past Mike 35. Tomzak. Was he the backup Mike Tomzak? I think he was. Uh, no, I think there was a guy named Fullish. Oh, okay. Fuller, sorry. Yeah, I almost had it. Right. Jim McMahon. That's amazing. Jim McMahon. Yeah. He was like the boss Jim of quarterbacks. Mc- oh, my God. I loved him. Always the glasses. Oh, and, my God. Yeah. And I, I, I wrote him, and I said, Jim, you may remember me from the radio days. I just want you to come on our podcast 
and just tell I want to sit back and listen to your stories. I just want you to tell all the stories from the Super Bowl shuffle oh. to the to the fridge starting to run the ball. Right. To, to, Peyton, to Peyton not Peyton, getting a touchdown. Peyton yeah. not getting a to December second, nineteen eighty five. The reason you had him on just December second, nineteen eighty five. To who would have won if there were a rematch in the Super uh, Bowl? What did you want the I mean, just story to getting out of the limousine after they drafted him when he went to they picked him up in a limousine at the airport and he, they drove him to see George Hallis and he got out and he had they, he was drinking all the alcohol in the limousine. Oh. <laughs> Why wouldn't you? It's free. I mean, oh, my God. <laughs> there is just you are going if you love old, funny, zany Jim McMahon stories, Great. I promise you. Just listen to episode 98. I remember there was a thing where Pete Rozelle said he couldn't wear a certain brand of something. So then he, of Adidas, course. Adidas, I think. Was it? Okay, so then he, the, yeah, he, yeah. but then he brought Rozelle yeah. on it just uh, to taunt him. Uh, I guarantee you Brian Bosworth would tell you, I looked up to Jim McMahon and I kind of got the idea. What would be the difference in ages? Not, would it be close? Uh, Bos was a rookie in the NFL in 87. Okay. But he started his antics in 85, okay. 86, okay. right after the Bears won the yeah. Super Bowl and McMahon was doing his yeah. thing. The thing that I think... Uh, look, I, I'm not. I don't want to oversell it, but I already have. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Just the story after story after story. What I love, you know, you don't really think about it, but the McMahon Ditka relationship. Oh right. <laughs> Talk about two oh, opposite ends of the spectrum oh my of personalities, God. right? Oh my God! Telling him to get in the game, him saying no. <laughs> Ditka telling him, here's the play we're running. Go After a timeout, he goes out and doesn't run the play. Oh, my god! He tells all of these stories right here on this episode. Love it. Can't wait. Yeah, you're going you're gonna to like it. And then Tim Kirkjian. Do you know Tim Kirkjian? Baseball guy. Baseball guy, ESPN baseball analyst, talking head on the 60-game sprint that we're going to have and how crazy that's going to be. Yep. And then I don't... I don't know that everybody knows the story. I think more and more people are reading about it. The story of Julius Jones who in Oklahoma has been on death row for two decades. Do you know that name, Julius Jones? Uh, not, not the Julius not Jones the that used to be the running back. Okay. No. no, I don't know. There was a 19-year-old kid in 1999. I think I have this straight. 1999, 19-year-old kid who was accused of murdering a man at 19. He was 19, um, convicted in 2002, and has been on death row, was supposed to die. And then they stopped in Oklahoma with, uh, with, uh, with, with capital uh, punishment. Okay. Because something went wrong with the process, and now they're restarting again. Oh, and it's looking more and more as details come out 20 years later that he didn't get a fair trial, that there was racial prejudice in the, in the arresting process, that the jury was, was racially motivated, wow. and that the guy is in jail on death row for the last 20 years, now 30-something, 30 39 years old, right. and he didn't do it. And so there's a lot of guys like like uh, Baker Mayfield, he played basketball for Blake Griffin's dad. Oh, wow. Blake Griffin and his brother grew up in Oklahoma. Their father was a high school basketball coach. Just before Blake and his brother became stars at the high school team, this guy played for Blake Griffin's father. So a lot, Russell Westbrook, a lot of s superstars with Oklahoma connections have been like, have been like calling the governor, like you got to do something about this. You got to reopen this. This kid, this kid didn't do it. Right. This kid's been in jail on death row for twenty years, right. and he's and he's going to be scheduled to die one of these days, and he didn't do it. So there's been a lot of upheaval and publicity in and around the Julius Jones story. So I got from the Oklahoman, the the columnist, the reporter. Uh, her name is Kayla Branch to come on and tell the whole story. Great. That'll be on episode 90. I don't know that story, so I'm excited to hear it. And I'm glad that there's some public swelling about, let's let's make sure this kid gets a fair trial at least. Yeah, yeah. 
Hey, Mitch. Thanks for introducing us to Gabby Weeks. I've got my UW mask on order. Go dogs. Wait, are you wetting your beak on this deal, sending all these people to her <laughs> to get these orders? What do you mean, wetting my beak? You're getting four cents a mask. No, or, come on. I get nothing. All right, all I right. get nothing and I like it. <laughs> hey, Mitch, love that you're supporting the small businesses like Gabrielle. My Washington State Cougar mask fits perfectly. Dear Mitch, while I love all your guests, Steve Phillips and you have always had a great chemistry. He was terrific again on 97. Our Mariners may just sneak in this year, Jose. Hey, Mitch, why do you even bother having Steve Phillips on the show? All he does is tell you what you want to hear, concerned patron. Dear Mitch, did you see the recent article that was making the rounds about Antonio Brown being a perfect fit for the Seahawks? Brown and Metcalf on the outside, lock it in the slot. Let's go. Sign me up. (sighs) <laughs> That's a tough one. That is a tough one. Antonio I Brown. I knew I'd get you on that one. I mean, as an athlete, though, who wouldn't want him on your team? And Pete Carroll's been known to take in other players who have some, you know. Of course he has. Yep. You get into the little Pete Carroll nest, and it's nice and cozy and warm, and you stay out of trouble. Uh, that would be a circus, though, wouldn't it? <laughs> that would be an absolute circus. But how good would that passing oh, attack be? I know. Russell Wilson running around, finding Tyler Lockett in the slot, finding... Antonio Metcalf. Brown on the outside, DK Metcalf with a pacifier in his mouth, the whole thing. Maybe Will Disley comes back healthy. Will throwing. Disley. We're going to talk about Will Disley. Oh, about time. We're going to talk about Will Disley. <laughs> All, right, All right. Hot shop before we open up episode 98 for some business. Remember, Evergreen Golf Call, not a great week for the stock market. Tyler Hayes' team at Evergreen can help your family grow your money for your kids' college educations or what have you. Check out their website, evergreengk.com. Sign up for the newsletter, which is free. Remember, Evergreen Golf Call all over the West Coast, headquartered here in Bellevue, a premier wealth manager in the Northwest. All 17 locations of Zeke's Pizza now open. 50% maximum capacity seating on the inside and outside. Don't forget to download the Zeke's Pizza app and have it delivered right to your home with a craft beer or two. Zeke's Pizza delivers, and it's homegrown in the Northwest. Daniel's Broiler, and now three of the four locations are open. They celebrated the reopening of the Bellevue location and the South Lake Union location this past week to go along with Leshy. There's no better place to celebrate special occasions than Daniel's Broiler, and we've got some catching up to do. Daniel's Broiler, world-class steakhouses. And the Kirkland office of Guild Mortgage, 425-250-3150. Low, low interest rates, low threes, high twos. The selling market is great. Refinancing opportunities with Jordan Flowers' team at the Kirkland office of Guild Mortgage. Again, the phone number is 425-250-3150. The Kirkland office of Guild Mortgage. Here comes episode number 98, and you are going to love Jim McMahon. I promise you that. It starts right now. Unfiltered. Taxpayers were okay only 25 years after building this beautiful stadium called the Ballpark in Arlington. They were okay with doing a $1.1 billion. Are the Mariners going to come after us? 
25 oh years after Safeco, literally, and we got five years left. Safeco was Safeco was opened in 1999. Oh, I was there. Safeco is five years younger than than the ballpark in Arlington. Amazing. And the ballpark in Arlington is no good anymore. Unfiltered. If you took every soul, if you took every person on earth, and you put them in a line, and at the front was the most likely person to get a tattoo. 7.8 billion. 7.8 billion yep. people. Literally in a line. How long would that line be? 7.8 billion long. Yeah. You took the first person and you ordered them in most likely to get a tattoo. <laughs> At least I would literally be looking behind me and no one would be behind me. Mitch is unfiltered. Okay, now we begin episode number 98. And I promised you a Will Disley reference. <laughs> yes. Episode Will Disley. Oh, 98. At the University of Washington, 98. Converted defensive lineman to tight end, wore 98. Did not wear 98 for the Seattle Seahawks. But if you want to go episode Will Disley, I can find a way, I can find a reason for you to go episode Will <laughs> can Disley. Can you really? Yes, I can. He I, was 98 at the University of Washington. I'm going to say hit. I think I need another car. I think I can do better than my like 13. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 13. Okay. Do you remember Julian Peterson? Julian Peterson. Yes. Uh, Michigan State star, first round draft choice, I believe, of the 49ers, came to the Seahawks, wore 98, both away and then here. And then he was, I think he was changed to 59. He was in a, kind of an outside athletic linebacker. Not ringing a bell, but it probably should. Julian Peterson? You should. Maybe if I go God, back. you know all these other guys, but you don't know <laughs> Julian Peterson? Right. <laughs> Let me tell you something that all these sites that actually do the greatest at each number, there are some that say 98, the greatest 98 in all of sports history is Julian Peterson. He's that good? He was was very good. There weren't a lot of great 98s. Okay, all right, all right. But especially before he got here, I mean, he was pretty good here. He was pretty good here. All right. I, I'm surprised you don't remember. I know Julian Julius Peterson. Peppers. All right. So that I just hit you with an ace. So you're not here at 14. <laughs> right, that doesn't help much. <laughs> what if I said episode... Sam Adams. Oh, Texas A&M fame. Big number 98. First round draft choice, 1994. 66 (laughs) games in six seasons. I remember the first interview that I ever said that I ever had him on KJR. Yeah, it probably was right after he was drafted. No, it wouldn't have been right after he drafted because he drafted in 94 and I wasn't here. So it would have been right when I got here in 95 midday show KJR. Oh, yeah. Here comes Sam Adams. Sam Adams joining us on the on the show. Hey, Sam. He said, don't refer to me as Sam. You can call me the Big Papa, the Showstopper. That's what he said to me. <laughs> really? And from that point on, I called him the Big Papa. He was trying to the build his brand even back then that I never Episode caught on. Episode <laughs> Sam. He was pretty good. Pretty good. I thought he was a And really then he went to player. Baltimore. He was on some of those great Ravens defenses. Arguably no? the greatest defense of all time on that, that Ray Lewis. But I don't think he was 98 in Baltimore. He was 98 here, but I don't. Well, Tony Siragusa, the goose, oh, right. was 98 in Baltimore. And they played together, I would they imagine. They did. I got to know Sam a little bit. He's a really good dude. I, I've oh, always liked him. Really? Oh, because you, 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 you once played on a team? I Miami. played on a team that he owned. It was in the Northwest Football League called the Eastside Hawks. Really? Yeah. Who was your rival? I, uh, well, <laughs> probably some team in Kent or something. I don't know. It was like a, kind of a local Northwest League. And he owned the team. He owned the team. He, he sort of coached. He couldn't keep, He couldn't butt out. But just to give you an idea. How, he was a big man. Yeah. Oh, I saw him. He was trying to teach a play, and our running back ran through the wrong hole. He was trying to stop him. He just <laughs> puts his arm out, lifts him up. He just goes, stop, 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 stop. Lifts him up with one arm. A grown man. 
I, I don't think he was trying to do it. He just wanted him to stop, and he, he like lifted the guy. I, I'll never forget that. And that's what it hit me. Like these guys are aliens. Like to play in the NFL, you just you're just not a normal human. Uh, he was humongous. Well, we can go with episode Sam Adams if you like. And his son just episode um, big. Po- his son just yeah. His uh, son signed. does play right. He yeah. still lives in town. Does yeah. he have health clubs or something, Sam Adams, or he, did he once? He did once have yeah. health clubs, but his son signed with the University of Washington for football. I would imagine his son is a big person. He's not built like Papa. Oh, he's not? No. Really? I, yeah, I think he might be a receiver. You're kidding. Or tight end or something. Yeah, a I was surprised Papa, too. The show Stopper. <laughs> right. <laughs> if I said the name Tom Harmon to you, Hotshot Scott, what would you say to me? I'd say I know Mark Harmon. From summer school fame. We're just going to go through Harmons that we know? <laughs> well, Little do you know that Mark Harmon was actually Tom Harmon's son. The actor, really? Yes. I didn't know that. that. Yes. In fact, they have a lot in common. Tom Harmon, in 1940, won the Heisman Trophy. Whew. He was a running back for the University of Michigan. Okay. And he wore number 98, and they called him Old 98, Tom Harmon. They've been doing the Heisman that long? Since yeah. 1940? Yeah, Jay Burwanger. Yeah. They've been doing All right, the- Fish. Settle down. Fish loves it. He loves it. He knows the answer to that question. <laughs> well, Tom Harmon was a, listen to this. He was a star at Michigan in the 30s, won the Heisman in 1940, was a World War II pilot. Wow. Then came back and played a little in the NFL, then was a sportscaster, was also in some TV and some movies, and he had a son named Mark Harmon. Mark Harmon. Who I think is still maybe on a show these days. I, I don't know, but still acting. Mark Harmon played. College football. He was the quarterback of the UCLA Bruins. You know that, right? I knew he before played. his Hollywood. You know him as a Hollywood star. <laughs> yeah, I know you know him, him as the world's sexiest man <laughs> by People right. Magazine. He was kind of a poor man's Don Johnson for a while. No, Don yeah. Johnson was a poor man's Mark Harmon. Is that right? Mark Harmon. So here's your trivia question. Mark okay. Harmon, the son of Tom Harmon. Tom Harmon wore 98. Mark Harmon, I don't think, wore 98. Mark Harmon. For the last 33 years, Hotshot Scott, yes. has been married to what TV star? And I'm, you're never uh, going to get... You're, you're never, never going to get me with this kind of stuff. You're going to get this? this the kind of I didn't even know until I read it today. Oh, really? Yeah. This is the kind of stuff that... You don't have this. I'm going to say Pam Dauber oh, from Mark God. and Mindy fame. You're... Now, how... Come on. My head's filled. We did not rehearse this. How do you know that? My head's filled with nonsense. This is just one of them that I happen to know. I loved Pam Dog. When she said the Jeep at the beginning. Oh. Oh, Cute little car. Driving around in the mountains. Oh, Oh, yes. Forget about it. Oh. Pam Dauber, 33 years married to Mark Harmon, that, the son of Tom Harmon, who wore number 98. That may be the greatest power couple of 1987 or whenever they were married. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great power couple. Well, uh, so there you got that. Oh, and there's one more 98 if you like. If you remember those Colts teams with Peyton Manning when they had the two defensive ends, one was really great from Syracuse named Dwight Freeney. <laughs> yeah, former Seahawk, I think, right? <laughs> Uh, and the oh, other guy on the other side, Stop doing that. the poor man's Dwight Freeney on the other side wore 98, and he was Robert Mathis. Do you remember Robert Mathis? Really good player. Yeah. yeah, really good player. Had 19 and a half sacks in his 11th season in the NFL. How many? 19 and a half? In his Ooh. 11th year as an old man. Impressive. In, the, in terms of NFL age. Anyway, so I don't know where you want to go. Those are the, those are the 98s. I don't know where The you Tom Harmon thing's pretty impressive. The fact that he went to World oh, War II, Tom, yeah. survived as yeah, a pilot, yeah. which he could very well have not have. Yes, I mean, a lot of people didn't. I mean, right. in his group, I'm talking about in his group, oh, there was okay. a crash. I don't really know the story, but there was a crash. <sighs> he was the only survivor. It's going to be tough to yeah. beat him. Yeah. 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 So. Not alive, Tom Harmon, I'm guessing? No. Yeah. No, okay. no, 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 no. I don't think. All right. <laughs> <laughs> I hope I didn't just write them off. Right. All right. Uh, so the last dance ended. We all know that. I asked if you're going to watch the Lance Armstrong 
a documentary, you passed, you're not interested. I think I'd watch it if I were, if it was just convenient. I wouldn't make like an appointment to watch it like I did the, the Jordan stuff. Yeah. All right, but you watch all the Fauci nonsense every day. You can't stop oh. watching. You can't stop watching the news. I can't wait for the 30 for 30 on Fauci. Oh, it's going to be great. Well, he was a basketball player. They should start with his basketball days in New York. That's true. He was, yes. Because there's a new documentary that came out. A new one. A week ago. Another 30 for 30. Oh. Well, it's not a 30 for 30. It was on MLB Network about Ken Griffey Jr. Yes. You heard about it? Yes. Was it last Sunday that it it debuted? That sounds right. Yeah. Yeah. A lot lot of locals have seen it. A lot of local. Have you seen it? I did. I've not seen it. I finished it uh, the day we were recording this. I wanted to get through it. So, yeah. And? Well, I grew up here. Griffey was, I was 15 when they, when they drafted Griffey. I've always loved him. It was right. fun watching all the old highlights. But it just felt like an enormous. He's the biggest star in the history of Seattle sports, right? I would assume so. Who would be even close? Yeah, I can't think of anyone. The Gary Paytons of the world. I mean, all those guys are right. great. But Walter nobody's Jones, junior. I mean, Walter Jones had a million Pro Bowls. But no, Come Gr- on, nobody's junior. Yeah, Griffey was the biggest star of my childhood and probably of my adult life. I, right. I can't think of because anyone. Because arguably, he's the greatest player that ever lived. I mean, there's, there's peop- there are people that would say that. I mean, he doesn't have maybe the greatest numbers of anybody in the history of He's got great numbers. I mean, he's a he's a Hall of Famer, and he's a unanimous Hall of Famer. Six hundred home runs, maybe. Oh yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, oh yeah, yeah. More than that. But I I think uh, I think that there could you could you could you could really make an argument that he was one of the greatest. Curious, who else is in the conversation? Greatest of all time. I mean, who who else? Greatest of all time in baseball. Yeah, who else well, is even thrown in? Baseball is hard because you got to go back to the Yankee era. Like Mickey you know, Mantle, all those guys. Yeah, yeah. Babe Ruth, Babe Ruth I guess. of course. Yeah, of course. So you liked it or you didn't like it? You're recommending for me to see it? Should I see it before the Lance Armstrong show? Should I see it after the Lance Armstrong? I think Armstrong you would appreciate the Griffey one more because you were here for some of his career. I was. You can sort of relate to it a little bit. Yeah. And, um, one part I felt a little, I don't want to say pathetic, but he he was really pushing. Do you know what Swingman is? I don't know what Swingman is. I guess that's his clothing brand. And it's a picture of him like on his backswing, not backswing, but after he swung. Yeah, yeah. yeah. His follow-through. His follow-through, right. Yeah, and the it's... famous junior follow-through. I think I know the logo. Okay. I think I know the logo. Do you have Swingman stuff? Is it a Nike thing? <laughs> I don't know if it's Nike. And yet. they were pushing it during the documentary? Everybody was wearing the shirts or something? Oh, my God. Every time they, they go to it him. It wasn't Tom Amansky's like, a... baseball. <laughs> I don't know what that is. But his, his old agent had a Swingman shirt oh. on, just coincidentally. Goldberg? Brett, Brett Goldberg? I think it was Goldberg. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. His parents, his kids, everyone's yeah. Everybody's got Everybody's wearing man. it? It's like, Ooh. all right. Do you think there's part of him that thinks he should have been Jordan as far as his legacy? I don't know. I don't know that he's he's wired that way. But he's got the swing man going. I don't know. It feels like he he's probably thinking I was as good as Jordan at at my you know respective sport. Why? And he probably if he wasn't, he was damn close. Yeah, he was kind of the Jordan of of baseball of that generation. I have I have not seen the show. I'd like to see the show, and I'm sure I will watch it at some point. It's on demand. I'm sure for me to see. Uh, but as I've said to you before, and I know I've talked a little bit about this on the air, Ken Griffey Jr., I don't know how far you want to go into this, how, how, how deep you want me to go into this. <laughs> well, it's unfiltered. But it's a, it is unfiltered. It, I, I, have, I have really complicated internal strife about Ken Griffey Jr. Okay. And again, we can, we can gloss over this Let's dig or in. we can dig in. I'm ready to dig I, in. I'm not, but this. I'm not here to upset listeners of Mitch Unfiltered because I know that the majority of our listeners are probably huge Ken Griffey Jr. fans. And I, and I don't, if we go down this road, I'm willing to go down this road about how I feel about him, just understanding that I'm not trying to sour anybody about Ken Griffey Jr. Okay. I just have complicated feelings. Just to kind of give you the baseline, 
the baseline to understand me. I don't know that we've ever talked about this. When I was becoming a sports fan, the first game that I really, that I really, really followed as a sports fan, as a kid, was okay. baseball. Huh. Even more than basketball. We didn't have any basketball yeah, yeah. teams. We didn't even have any baseball teams. We had the Atlanta Braves who trained across the road from my dad's office in West Palm Beach, Florida. I used to, for whatever reason, I'd go out and watch the games in spring training. I felt these, these teams were the worst teams. There was something beautiful about how bad they were. That bad? Well, in those days, we're talking about 1975, 76, 77, 78. The two worst teams every single year in baseball. American League, Seattle Mariners, <laughs> National League, Atlanta Braves. And I didn't know from the Seattle Mariners. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yet, I was this 8, 9, 10, 11-year-old kid who fell desperately in love with baseball and the Atlanta Braves. And I played baseball, basketball, little football, golf, tennis, whatever. Yeah. But in terms of following sports, I followed baseball. How does this have to do with Griffey? It doesn't really have anything to do with Griffey. I'm just giving you kind of my, my history as a sports fan. Okay. So... I would say that I have been following very closely. When I say I followed, <laughs> I literally listened to every Atlanta Braves game on radio. I'd Ooh. sit in my brother Sanders' room and listen on his Panasonic radio <laughs> to WJNO in, in, in West Palm Beach that was a, a carrier of the Braves game. While they were no one, I don't think anybody listened to the games in even Atlanta. <laughs> I was sitting there as an eight or nine year old listening to the game. Dale Murphy, Bob Horner, you don't know these guys. Dale Murphy, Bob Dale Murphy, Horner, yeah, yeah. Horner, Rafael Ramirez, Glenn Hubbard. Yeah, I mean, yeah. these guys, I mean, they were lovable <laughs> losers. I mean, just terrible. They were I'm, terrible. I'm laughing. Phil Necro was one of my favorites. Yeah. Oh, Knuckleball. Yeah, Knuckleball Phil Necro. I'm laughing because I picture you telling Max he's got to listen to every single game <laughs> on a little AM radio. You won't watch an inning of a game, let alone <laughs> right. listen on the And I would, I would every, until I became old enough to drive and had, had like a social life for years, and I'd sit and literally listen Jeez. to every inning of every game starting at 7 o'clock and my parents would be like, oh, he's in Sanders' room listening to the game. And they were terrible. They never were any good. They Do were never terrible. who called all the games? Yeah, of course. Uh, Ernie Johnson, uh, his father. Oh, really? Ernie Johnson's father was a great, great Braves announcer. It's the only way to get Skip into this Skip Carey, who was the son of, of Harry Ca Carey. Harry Carey, Pete yeah. Van Weeren. And then they went on to, I'm telling you, the greatest, maybe the greatest day of my sports life was when I was told WTBS is coming on and now I don't have to listen to it. I can watch every single game. <laughs> going, I, the idea that I was going from listening to them on the radio Jeez. to watching them, and then I watched every game for years on WTBS. This is how much of a race. Okay, so that's how... So I would say 45 years I'm watching baseball. Okay. 45 years I'm really... Dialed I'm, in. I'm dialed into yeah. baseball. This guy, Ken Griffey Jr., comes along. And I get a load as a kid... I guess not a kid. What was the year? What was the year that he came in? He was drafted in 87. His first okay. year was 89. Okay. So I'm 12 years old. No, that's not right. I'm 20, 22 years old. Yeah. Okay. This guy, Ken Griffey Jr., comes, comes around, and I've never seen anything like it before. I, I'm just like everybody here in Seattle, even though I was back there. And the more I watched him, the more I was convinced. And this is the first part of my complicated feeling. If you said to me, Mitch, okay, so you've been watching seriously baseball since, let's say, 1975, 1976. That's mm -hmm. 45 years. If you said to me, Mitch, who's the greatest? Who's the greatest player you ever watched play? Not including any guys that were before my time. Right. Not only, Scott, would I say Ken Griffey Jr., but if you then asked me who was the next best, I couldn't even answer. Yeah, I'm trying to think about that. It's a good question. 
I wouldn't even be. Now, you might say Barry Bonds. They used to compare Bonds to Junior, and they used to compare, I don't know, Kirby Puckett. I mean, there were a lot of great players in those sure. in those years. But And this is just one man's opinion. I know a lot of people in this town agree with me. There was just nobody, to me, in the same vein as him. There was nobody more exciting. There was nobody more enjoyable to watch. There was nobody who was more well-rounded. I loved watching him run. I loved watching him throw. I loved watching him catch in center field. I loved watching him swing the bat, hit the home run. Put the, uh, there, there was just obviously nothing the guy couldn't do. And he was so far. And I'm telling you all, you can, you can throw Jeters at me and Puckets and Ripkins and, and Bond. You can throw them all at me. Yeah. And I'm telling you, as I sit here right now with you on episode 98, no one was even in the same picture for me as Ken Griffey Jr. To find someone that special on defense and then that equally as special on offense. He was combo is He was going to do something magical every single game. You yeah. could watch him every single game. So what's complicated about it? Well, in 1994, I got a, I got an audition in December 1994 with KJR Radio. I got the job and started in December 1995. And I came to town and I was thinking to myself, I didn't even really know where Seattle was. Right. But I did know that there was a guy named Ken Griffey Jr. who was the greatest playing in Seattle. And now I'm going to get a chance to go watch him up close and personal. Yeah. And he didn't disappoint on the playing field. But where he disappointed, and again, you you asked me, so I'm going to give it to you. Okay. I'm, not, I'm not trying to upset anybody in our audience. I'm just here to tell you what I witnessed I can remember the supreme disappointment mm. watching him handle people, especially young people in the media, watching the way he treated people, watching what he said to people. Now, I can tell you that I never had an issue with Junior. Junior doesn't know me. I don't know him. I don't even think I've ever spoken to him. I don't think I ever interviewed him. Never had him on. I don't think he ever was on. Wow. I'm not even sure that we even asked for him to on, be on because I knew he wasn't going to come on. So this is not. This does not come from like, oh, Mitch and Junior had it out. We never had it out. Yeah. But what I saw and what I watched and the stories I heard from the people that worked with me and in the business, it was nastiness. It was so, so disappointing. You can imagine, I mean, you probably went through it a little yourself when you got in the business, that I had just watched from afar this, this gorgeous superstar baseball player in my favorite sport. And then I'd come here and I'd see it was even better in person. To then watch that part of him was so, I can't say it any better. It was just, he was, he was nasty to people. He was rude to people. He was dismissive of people. We are talking, though. Just understand this. And I, and I know that there's a lot of people in our audience that are probably saying, we don't and we never cared about how athletes treat the media. But we're talking about 22-year-old guys. We're talking about, you know, 23-year-old guys making $10 an hour. Yeah, I, mean, I was he, one of them. Okay, yeah. so, so you have your own story. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm 15 when, in 1989, so I, I love Griffey. Okay. Who doesn't love him? I okay. grew up in okay. Seattle. Love him. I'm 21. I'm an intern at KJR. Nobody wants to go to the Mariner games to get audio that needed to be cut up for the updates for the next day. Because day's, they sucked. For the next day's greatest morning show ever in KJR history, Michael Knight, New York, Vinny. <laughs> Maybe you heard of it. 
<laughs> but no, th- so th- those guys needed audio for their updates in the morning, and they were oh, terrible. They were, they were drawing ten grand, or you know, maybe eleven thousand. Yeah. So I'd have to go in the locker room and, and get the audio, and he was so scary to me, so unapproachable. No one even approached him. I mean, seasoned guys like Larry Stone, uh, Larry Larue, like guys who have been around. No one, no one. Went, it was just an unwritten rule that nobody go up to Junior. You just you weren't allowed to. There was no approaching him right. at all. And I, but I, there's no thank you. I'm going to pass on that. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. And then there is something terribly m- much darker and much much nastier. Right? Somebody we worked with, young guy, probably 26, 27 right. at the right. time, asked Griffey to come on once at the Kingdom, and his response was, no, and you can perform a sexual act on me. And I remember hearing that or hearing that story. And this was a young producer on an hourly wage. Right, right. right. Yeah, that's exactly right. 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 Not right. making hardly any money. right. And right. he was he was very there were stories about him poisoning other athletes about don't do any media in Seattle oh, yeah. or don't go on with them or don't do that. They're terrible, terrible people. Yep. I mean, he was just, and and you would think hearing this all these years later. Well, what could they have said KJR about Ken Griffey Jr.? <laughs> right. Did it, in those days and we're talking 1995. Did anybody write or say a single <laughs> bad word right. about Ken Griffey Jr.? No. Nah. I mean, come on. He was, was, he was untouchable. Yeah, he yeah. was untouchable. And yet he routinely treated people like shit. And I saw it and I heard it and yep. I didn't like it and I was heartbroken about it. And I do want to say because, you know, who am I to judge people? I'm not. Uh, I, I should be. I should be no person to judge people. Mm-hmm. Look. Granted, there could have been great reasons. There could have been internal reasons. There could have been justifications. He was a really, really young guy. What, 18, 17? 17 when he got drafted. Number one overall, right. was thrust into the spotlight. At 19, he makes the bigs. At 19. I think it's fairly well documented that he had some demons early on when he was a kid trying to understand and, and cope uh, with it all. There, there may be, and in fact, I would even say there are reasons when somebody behaves the way they did, that way that we're describing, there's always something internally that's going on. Okay. And so I don't hesitate to... I don't understand that. I don't know that to be the fact, but I'm I'm fully willing to accept that there are reasons to his behavior. And I will also say that I'm certain that somebody listening to this right now would say, well, he was great to me. He was great to my kid. He was great to the Make-A-Wish Foundation. He was, I'm certain that, that this is maybe just a, a side of him that a lot of other people didn't see. I saw it. I hated it. I didn't want to see it. I didn't like it. They knew it. The Heavleys of the world knew it. The Adamax of the world knew it. The newspaper guys knew it. The radio guys. Nobody would say anything. It was kind of a secret. Yep. But it was just really, really disheartening. So there's the answer to, there's the long-winded answer to your question. I, I have complicated feelings for him. I wanted to like him so much yeah. when I got here. I know. And I couldn't. I couldn't like him. He made it impossible for me to like him. From what I saw, they say you want unfiltered. There's unfiltered. They say don't meet your heroes sometimes, <laughs> and that applied with Junior and me. At least from what I saw, Softy, a guy we worked with at KJR, loved Mark McGuire. Probably still loves Mark McGuire. Right. The producer of Softy's show got Mark McGuire to sit down and put the headset on that we had down there and do an interview. Mark McGuire, like, yeah, yeah, for, for Softy, yeah. Griffey runs right over. Who are you doing don't the do interview it. with? Don't do it. Uh, KJR, don't do it. Don't do it, man. They're going to put callers on. They're going to do all kinds of stuff. Don't do it. So McGuire politely takes the headphones off and hands them to the producer. Killed Softy. It's his favorite player. And, and by the way, his, it's probably his second. His first favorite player is probably Griffey, who just salted out that interview for him. So when you see and hear that kind of stuff, it, it, 
it's tough. It is. I watched it too with kind of remembering those stories of what kind of a guy. And I mean, maybe he's different at 50 now. Maybe, he may be. maybe he's I, delightful, but he looked, wasn't when he was look, here. I'm, I'm totally open to that. I, yeah. I just don't know. Yeah. He's very private and I don't know. And I hope he's different. And I, I hope kind of like the rest of us, we look back upon some of these bad days that we've had and wish that we could do them all over again. I certainly do. And I don't, I don't hesitate to be willing to accept that. I'm just telling you what I saw and what I felt, and I was radically disappointed with him because he made it impossible for me to like him personally when I loved him so much as a as a gracious athlete, as as the, one of the great athletes, as the Michael Jordan of, of Major League Baseball. Right now, and, and and I know that it gets a little complicated, even from a professional standpoint, for people in this town, because he got to a point where he didn't want to play for the Mariners anymore, and he told them, "You're going to trade me, right? Yeah, not only are you going to trade gonna, me, you're going to trade me to the Cincinnati That's Reds. Right. Yes, and so essentially, they made it impossible to get." anything close to although yeah. they did get some good players in that well, deal my, uh, Cameron turns was a good out, player but he was a very good player the, all-star player the team wasn't allowed to leverage Ken Griffey Jr.'s worth because yeah. they were forced to this one team I I tend to after many years I'm willing to look away from that I I, I you know I think I don't know you, you not, seem to not me as much I mean if, if, if compare, I, to me I, I guess what I'm saying is compared to what I'm talking about okay it's not the That's same nothing. thing. That's nothing. Right. That's nothing compared yeah. to what I talk about. I mean, Randy Johnson, he wouldn't admit it. Randy Johnson dogged it for a half a year to yeah. try to get himself out of Seattle. Had a bad back, couldn't, pl- couldn't pitch, oh, yeah, had, like a, had, a f- <laughs> had a five ERA, and then he got traded to Houston and didn't allow a run the rest of the yeah, year. Right. Yeah, right. Five I more mean, Cy Youngs. There, there, I mean, people have been forcing their way. Athletes have been forcing their way out of town and pushing for trades and God, he wouldn't be the, the he's the millionth guy to do that. It'll be a million more. So I, I tend to be willing over time to to look. And then he came back here yeah, and to a hero. Ceremonial, well, I mean, ceremonial, was, yeah, right? Yeah, then yeah. he drove off in the middle of the night. Then he drive he drove off in the middle of the night. Decided he didn't want to play anymore. And I don't really called from like that. a New Mexico garage or or <laughs> gas, gas station. Really? Yeah. yeah. I don't remember that. He just left. Yeah, I think he just left. I don't think he told anybody he was leaving. But all of that I can get beyond. Okay. It's the other stuff. It really hurt me. When people talk about A-Rod, there's so much venom from Seattle fans because A-Rod took more money. I mean, who can blame the guy, right? Did he take sizably more? He got, as I recall, he got $252 million over 10 years with the Rangers. And the best offer that I think the Mariners made, I think I had Lincoln and Armstrong on together okay. after he left. And they told me something like three years, $90 million, okay. or, uh, you know, so, or so, some crazy look. He got... He got like 150 million more guaranteed to leave to go to the Rangers. So that's a no-brainer. There's nobody <laughs> on earth <laughs> right. that would have stayed under those circumstances. Okay, everyone hates A-Rod for some reason. Right. Well, more happened then after that. Right, but they were With pretty steroids mad when they left. And perform enhancing and drugs, and he became yeah. A-Rod and whatever. But, but at the time, yeah, they were yeah. pissed. I mean, like, he, I want to play for a winner. Right. Probably and you're saying they weren't pissed when, when Junior left? Yeah, everyone loves Griffey still. Griffey forced their hand. I'm not playing here anymore because I want to see yeah. my family. Because Junior kind of transcended everything. That's here. right. That's right. He transcended everything here. And you're right because Alex Rodriguez was a high for. He was if he was the he may have been the first pick, second pick. I want to say out of high the school, first out of high school in Florida, Miami. Yep. And came and was ours and grew up and became a superstar yep. and so essentially should have gotten the same type of right. accommodations from the fans 
that Junior did, but he didn't, did nope, he? No, he sure didn't. Junior was different. If you go grab 10 Mariner fans right now and ask them their opinion on Griffey and A-Rod, 9 out of 10 will love Griffey and 9 out of 10 will hate A-Rod. It's so bizarre. But it reminded me when I was watching this, like, oh, yeah, he just forced his way out. So tell That's me, it. if I watch this, if I put my stupid insecurities aside yeah. and I watch this, will, will he come away, will I walk away that he's, he's likable in this? Is he... <sighs> is he cuddly in this is he do you want to give him a big hug do you want to love him is he enjoyable in this or is it still the standoffish kind of screen up window up ken griffey jr it's hard to get past the fact that he has zero gray hairs i have to start with that <laughs> i mean oh my god the just for men or whatever he has oh. in jet black hair really oh, yeah and, but the gray and the goatee of oh. course so you're not really tricking anyone oh. I don't know that he comes across as even likable in this. Really? He just, but he's, he doesn't come across he's unlikable. Junior, he's just junior. He, you know how Michael Jordan had trouble giving other people credit for whatever reason? Yeah. It, Griffey sort of has a little bit of that too. He, he, you're not going to walk away going, oh, he seems like a different guy. He seems very likable. But again, he doesn't seem unlikable. He just seems like junior. I don't know if it's I can explain too bad. it. It's too bad. At times, I thought to myself, he's really troubled. Hmm. He had it all. Yeah. All the talent in the world, all the money, all the stardom, right. and it was just, in some ways, maybe toxic for him. It was, yeah, you could you could sense that when he was young that that it was not easy for him. Well, not easy. They had LeBron James on, which I thought was an inter- interesting perspective because oh, yeah. LeBron was Similar. what eighteen, nineteen, right. first overall pick for right. a league, right? And the kind of pressure that comes with it, right? Which, by the way, I don't think we talk enough about how LeBron was able to not only live up to the expectations, but exceed it, right? So did Junior. I mean, holy crap. So did Junior. Yeah. yeah Star from did the too. day he stepped yeah. onto the major league field, right? Number one overall pick. Pretty good pick. It worked out, right? <laughs> I just, I forgot about all the injuries in Cincinnati. Oh, yeah. He was never, he was never healthy after he left here. Almost, almost karma. Almost bad karma. Maybe. It was like yearly, though. I don't think, and I may be speaking out of my ass here, I recall Junior not liking Safeco Field when it was being built. Mm. He was worried. I, I, I kind of remember him being worried that it was not going to be a very favorable hitting ballpark, and it wasn't for for him. You know, you were going from the kingdom to that. Right. And I, I always sensed that maybe that was part of his reservations of staying and wanting to leave. And at the same time, Cincinnati was building a ballpark, as I recall, mm. that was super friendly down the right field line. Oh, gotcha. Oh, super friendly to right field. Weird that it's the house, Haven. the house that Junior built, and he didn't like it. If he didn't have all those <laughs> injuries, you know, well, maybe that's the difference between him and Jordan. Jordan sort of went out on top. I mean, he played for the Wizards after that, but yeah. he wins a championship in his last season, whereas yeah. Griffey felt like just sort of sputtered. To right. the end, even though he had 630 home runs or whatever he has, maybe that's the difference so are between you, him and Jordan. To put a wrap on this before we get to the three interviews, and by the way, you're going to love Jim McMahon. Um, are you telling me to watch it or not watch it? I think you'll enjoy it, and I'm curious to see how you think he comes off. I'm probably going to get a chance to hear Dave Niehaus. That was great. So Watching the highlights. How bad can that be? What, you know, Randy looks to the sky, except for he's in Which the kingdom. He's covered by the dome or <laughs> right. covered by the roof of the dome. <laughs> yeah, but swung on and belted, you hear that How about a bunch. when he broke his wrist? They show when he broke his wrist on the going into the fence. Okay, I watched that today. So you have to watch. As he's walking away from center field, the trainer's holding his arm. Correct. Pinella walks out. You can see the back of Pinella. Hello. Did he know his name? Uh, Did he know Junior's name? I get tired of watching this horse shit. <laughs> <laughs> whole early, whole late. I get tired of watching. But um, so Pinella walks out. You see the back of him. Yeah. He glances over at Junior's wrist. He turns around, and you can just see him go, uh, mother 
effort. Really? You can like you could you can see him like really? he, he took one look at it and knew. It was broken right there. He just said the F word like he knew mm. it was over. Season over, although he did come back. Mm. So yeah, they, they get into that. That's again, I don't that's pretty amazing. Three months later, he's coming back after a broken wrist. Hitting home runs. Hitting again. home runs in baseball. What year was that? Ninety five. So was, it was the ninety five season. The ninety five season. And by the way, it was great to see Pinella. He's he's in this a lot. He's lounging and looks like Florida. <laughs> he looks tan. He looks Pinella. fit. He looks young. Nobody better than Pinella. Energetic. Looks great. Uh, it was great to see him. Oh God. I'll tell you, Kenny was a special player. I was. Do you big. know the wheel story when he when he Texas when we were in Texas at the ballpark that we talked about in '90s? Ballpark in Arlington. Yeah, the ballpark in Arlington for the final four games of the '95 season. They had to win like two of them to win the division, and they won one, right. lost three, and they that forced him to have to play the playoff. And then I've told you that we got on our way home, we got airplane problems, we missed the the one-game playoff. We got stuck. Oh, really? Wheel and I got stuck. Oh, I remember that. My favorite Pinella story is that Wheels, Wheels remembers it a little differently, but I was standing there. You know, they're losing. The stress is on. Yeah. Are they going to be able to close the deal and win the 95 uh, American League West? And after one of the losses... Wheels and I are there, and I'm standing there, and Wheels comes in, all four, 400 pounds of them, yeah. <laughs> you know, dressed dressed to the nines. Always I mean, dressed nice, dressed Wheels. Nice, yeah, yeah, but yeah. huge, right? Yeah. And there's this, it's this tiny room, and there's a million people around Lou Pinella. I've never told you this? No. Well, you have. I just don't remember me. Yeah, yeah. There's like a million people. He's sitting yeah. at a desk, and there's people are all over, and it's a tiny little room, yeah, and yeah. he's pissed off. He's smoking, probably. He, he's just pissed <laughs> off. He's not happy. Yeah. And Wheeler comes in like two minutes late. He's already started. And Wheeler's like, excuse me, excuse me, excuse me. He's like getting himself in there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's really nowhere to stand. He's got the microphone and the oh, recorder. Pinella's looking, eyeing him while he's talking. He's talking to somebody else, but he's eyeing him. And yeah, I'm yeah. like, oh, this is not going to end well. And, <laughs> and Wheels is like, uh, excuse me, excuse me. Oh, Let me just get in here. Excuse me. And he kind of walks around the desk. Okay. To where nobody's standing. That's the only place that's left is like on Lou's side right, of the right. desk. And he puts the microphone oh, after no. after about five minutes of working his 400-pound frame through this whole crowd <laughs> of people. He puts the microphone and Pinella immediately is in the middle of the answer to question, stops and goes, get that effing... <laughs> Would you get that effing thing out of my face? And he did say effing. Yeah, Would yeah. you get that effing thing out of my face? Because it was oh front of the side. And Wheeler, Wheeler's like, yes, sir. Uh, excuse me. And he starts going. <laughs> Had to backtrack the same path. Yeah. Excuse me. Excuse me. Excuse, uh, excuse me. me. It was so damn funny. Pinella was kind of scary, though, when he yeah, had yeah. that, that oh, yeah. fire in his oh, eyes. Because yeah. I used uh, to have to go down there. But yeah. It was only five of us in there because no one gave a oh, crap. God. But I was scared to ask, oh. ask him anything. And he was smoking, and the smoke's hitting my eyes, and I'm sitting there <laughs> holding the mic. Oh, God. You have a can of beer there. All right. The uh, three, three interviews, and then you and I will come together for the other stuff segment. Oh, I got some stuff. Time to check in with Tyler Hay, the CEO of Evergreen Golf Call. The economy, Tyler, still trying to shake the last several months. And with that come some opportunities. Stock market slid last week. Dow lost over 700 points on Friday. What's the game plan? Certainly, Mitch, when the market was down 37 from its peak, there were some really good opportunities. Today, I think that what people are kind of um, adjusting to is a new reality when they think of investing. You know, for the last 10 years, we've been in a bull market, and my five-year-old could have made money by just picking stocks. And now I think that people are having to be a little bit more thoughtful about, do I want to own airlines? Is it an opportunity? Is it a risk? Do I want to own casinos or hospitality companies? 
And then you think about, you know, how the tech sector looks relative to some of those other ones. And you, you might be deciding that just buying the S&P 500 and not worrying about what stocks are in it. I think that that might be kind of an old way of thinking and people are adjusting to this new way. Okay, so I'm a Mitch Unfiltered listener and I want to learn more about Tyler Hayes' team at Evergreen Golf Call. Tyler, what would you say is the best way to do that? They can go to our website at evergreengk.com and there's two resources there that I think would be most helpful. We write a weekly news newsletter and it takes a lot of time, but it really does a good job at kind of conveying our thoughts on the market and our outlook and that's available for free. And then there's also a financial personality assessment that we have on our website that allows clients to kind of tell us who they are, what are their investment preferences, and engage us that way. Hey, Tyler, thank you so much for being a great partner of Mitch Unfiltered. We appreciate it very much. Thanks, Mitch. Let's get on the link soon. <laughs> Check out the website, evergreengk.com. Unfiltered. Gives to Peyton. Peyton wants to throw it again. Nobody open. Now Peyton back to McMahon. Touchdown! Moorhead, one of the tight ends in motion. Perry what drives through and following behind is McMahon for the touchdown. It almost looked like an option play. And there you see McMahon head-butting with his offensive line. We're getting ready to carry Dick. Dicka doesn't want to go yet. He says, wait till I see that final second. Who's going to argue with Perry? He wins most of those. Walter Payton, Mike Ditka, Hungry Chicago, finally champions on this January day in New Orleans. Getting oh so close to our 100th episode of Mitch Unfiltered, we've had some great opportunities to chat with some of the most colorful personalities in sports history, and our next guest fits the bill two-time All-American quarterback at BYU, member of the College Football Hall of Fame, one of the indelible faces of perhaps the most talked-about NFL team in history. Here's the always fun Jim McMahon. Jim, thanks so much for joining us on Mitch Unfiltered. Hey, no worries, Mitch. Glad to be here. I love hearing the old stories, but before we get there, so many of your peers from that generation are struggling both physically and mentally. How's Jim McMahon doing? Well, uh, for the last 12 years, I've been doing fairly well because I've, I've got a doctor in New York that I go see regularly. Uh, I get an adjustment on my neck. It helps my uh, spinal fluid flow properly. And uh, when it starts backing up is when I start having a lot of problems. But uh, lately, it's been okay for the last three months. That's good. It's good to hear that you're doing all right. Before I ask you to reminisce about the, the 85 Bears for the 10 millionth time, I want to go back to BYU. A lot of people in our audience are not old enough to remember or have forgotten. You were the punter at BYU before you were the quarterback. What kind of punter was Jim McMahon? Well, I, I punted. Uh, I made the varsity squad as a freshman by being the punter. So I, I was a third-team quarterback at the time. Really wasn't ready to play college football, but I, I, I could kick the ball. So I, I did that my first, actually, first two years until I got on the field. And then uh, once I started playing QB, they didn't want to let me kick anymore. So. <laughs> did you ever throw the ball from the punting formation? No, no, they wouldn't let me do that. <laughs> I didn't I didn't really have to punt much my freshman year. Our, our quarterback was Gifford Nielsen, who was a senior at the time. Yeah. He was a, you know, a Heisman candidate. And then he, he got hurt in the, I believe, the fourth game of the year. So then Mark Wilson took over. 
Yeah. And uh, had, had an incredible year. And uh, <clears throat> so I didn't have to kick a whole lot. But it was just nice being able to play on the varsity as a freshman. You weren't too shabby when you got your chance to play quarterback, one of the great players in college football. I was uh, I was reading some articles earlier today to get ready for the interview, and for some reason, and I should remember, I'm embarrassed that I don't remember, but for some reason, I don't remember the 1980 Holiday Bowl that I was reading about. You guys are down 45 to 25 to Eric Dickerson, the Pony Express at SMU, with four minutes to go. Is that right? Yeah, that was about right. And then what happened? Well, then we, I started playing better. <laughs> I, I, I had a bad first half. I didn't. I was I was forcing a lot of stuff, and then uh, you know we had a tough time stopping. You know uh, Eric Dickerson and Craig James. They they ran up and down the field on us that night. But in the second half, we started rolling a little bit, and then with four minutes to go, like you said, we were down twenty. You know we get the ball. We're we're starting to march, and uh, I believe that was a series that we had a fourth down play. Our coach sent in the punting team. And uh, I told everybody to get in the huddle. And they said, oh, the punting team's coming out here. I said, well, we ain't kicking this ball. <laughs> Why kick? You're, you're down 20. You know, if you kick then, you have no shot. Uh-huh. So uh, Coach Edwards had to burn a timeout because I wouldn't get off the field. And then uh, <laughs> when I came over and chatted with them, um, basically said, what are you guys doing? You giving up? I said, we, we kick here. We got no shot at all. So he looked at the coordinator, and the coordinator was looking at him like, hell, I don't know what to do. I said, oh, I'll take care of this. I mean, I went back in the huddle and just said, look, you know, we got uh, – I'm just going to call the play at the line of scrimmage. I, I, I gave us a very basic formation. And uh, for some reason, they, they were not covering our, our All-American tight end, Clay Brown. It was, I believe it was fourth and two. I knew I could throw a little out to Clay for a first down, so that's what I did. We got the first down, went on and scored. And then uh, we tried an onside kick. We got it back, and I went down and scored again. Uh, we tried another onside kick. We didn't get this one, but uh, our defense finally held up and, and stopped them. Fourth down, they were punting, and we blocked their punt. So we get the ball, I believe, around their 40, 40 or 45-yard line right. with about 18 seconds left in the game. Right. And uh, we had time for about three plays. The first play, I went back and just I threw it out of the end zone, actually. I uh, shouldn't have never thrown that ball, but – then the second down play, uh, I tried to just pick up a little chunk of yardage and I had my tight end coming across the middle. And just as I was about to throw the ball, I see the the cornerback from the other side of the field had, had fallen off his man and was going to, if I threw Clay a good pass, it was probably going to be picked off. So I threw it low and behind him. So that wasn't, so now there's three seconds to go yep. and uh, get in the huddle. And I said, you know, we practice this play Every week, we, it was just called save the game pass. It's basically everybody just runs to the middle of the field. And if you can catch it, catch it. If not, tip it up. And so uh, I went back and, and just heaved it as high and as far as I could throw it. You know, it came down in the end zone. With Clay Brown was surrounded by about four of the SMU players who all went up for the ball. And none of those guys actually touched the ball. The ball went right into Clay's hands. And uh, he caught it. And that tied the game, and we sent our kicker in to kick the extra point to win it with no time left. So that was, uh, it was it was a lot of fun to be able to come back and win that game, not only to win it, but that was the first bowl game that BYU had ever won. So really? it was good to be a part of that. 46-45, to 45. is that still, was that the, the most exciting game, high school, college, or pro that you ever, you ever played in, Jim? Uh, well, it was definitely one that, you know, everybody thought that the game was over. I mean, the stands were pretty much empty by the time the game was over because people were filing out. Yeah. 
thinking it was over, but it was a, it was a hell of a comeback. You know, it was nice to be able to finally start throwing the ball the way I was supposed to do it and get a win for us. You know, like I said, it was the first win BYU ever had in the bowl game. So, uh, and then, you know, the following year we go back and we win by one point again against Washington State. So that holiday bowl was pretty exciting for a lot of years. Yeah, it was. BYU was always a mainstay of the holiday bowl. The great Jim McMahon is uh, good enough to tell some old stories. You're drafted by the Bears, fifth overall, I think, in 82. You felt like you could be more spirited, more free-spirited than you were in college. How'd that go over the first year or two with Ditka and Hallis at the beginning, Jim? Well, I wasn't I wasn't all that impressed with Hallis when I first met him. I think I only talked to him that one time, or maybe twice. The day I got drafted, I, I flew into uh, Chicago. It was Coach Ditka's first year there as well. You know, I just took a three-hour flight from Utah to Chicago. I had a 45-minute uh, limo ride to the facility, mm-hmm. and there happened to be beer in the limo. So, you know, <laughs> after four hours on the road, I, I was a little parched, so I had a couple. And then as we got to the uh, facility, I noticed there was still a couple left, so I grabbed, I grabbed them and stepped out of the limo, and I didn't, didn't realize there was going to be press everywhere. And so they made a big stink about me showing up with a beer. And, and, you know, it wasn't like I was 18. It was, I was almost 22. So yeah. I didn't see the big stink about that. And then I, as I was walking in the facility, Coach Ditka was there. And I just said hello. And, and uh, he just kind of looked at me and saw the beer and laughed and, and, and went on his way. But then I had to go see Coach uh, George Hallis. And I'm sitting outside of George's office for almost an hour just looking at the secretary. And finally, I said, uh, hey, wh- what am I doing here? And she goes, oh, Mr. Hallis would like to talk to you. And I said, well, w- w- you know, when is that going to happen? You know, I had a couple guys that were on the Bears already, friends of mine, Kenny Marjoram, Keith Van Horn. And uh, they wanted to take me out to celebrate. And so I wanted to get rolling out of there. And, and so she said, well, Mr. Hallis is taking a nap. And I said, well, wake him up. I said, I got things to do. You know. And so when I finally go in there, he's he's sitting there in this big chair, and he's he's got already got a contract. I, I I was just drafted, you know, five six hours earlier, and he's got a contract for me already, saying this is the most money he's ever offered a quarterback or any any rookie. And then he started telling me, well, you you know, you, you're too short, you have a bad eye, your arm suspect. He goes, maybe you should go to Canada. <laughs> Those were his first words to me. So I'm, I wasn't real happy with the guy right out of the gate. So, and I just said, Hey, why'd you draft me old man? You know, who's on your scouting department? Oh. You know, why am I here then? And so he he shows me this contract. I looked at it, it was just garbage and I just rolled it up and threw it at him. I said, I'm not signing this. I walked out because the USFL at the time, if anybody remembers the USFL sure. league, sure. that was coming in in 1982 as well. And um, George Allen, the former Redskins coach, was was going to be coaching the Chicago team. And I knew I had a meeting with George in the next day or two. So I went to that meeting for, for George uh, Allen. And uh, he offered me a great deal. And I said, George, you, you put this in writing. I'll sign it and play for you guys. But I, at the time, there was, a, there was this deadline that there was never before, never since, that said uh, the NFL said if you don't sign by July 15th you don't you can't play that year yeah. and that's when I knew the NFL was full of crap because two guys Marcus Allen and Darren Nelson both uh, from the Pac-10 they they didn't sign before the 15th and they got to play right so I, I learned a lot in that, that rookie year but any anyway I ended up having to sign the uh, contract that I had wadded up and threw back at George <laughs> Howard because 
George Allen never even came up, came with uh, oh. that deal in writing. Oh, gosh. That's funny. All right. Before we get to 85, Jim, uh, the 84 set season ended with a violent game against the Raiders, I think it was, in Los Angeles. Remember that game? Oh, um, it was in Chicago. Yeah, it was in I remember, Chicago. Remember it clearly. I, st- I still feel it every day. <laughs> Tell everybody about it. Well, they they were just coming off the Super Bowl victory. They had a good football team, and um, we were pretty good. That and we we started coming together the latter part of '83, so we knew we were going to be pretty good in '84. And uh, I think we were like seven and two when we played the Raiders. I know our defense put out two of their quarterbacks, and then they they got me uh, right at the end of the second quarter. I was running and tried to. I was trying to make a move on the safety, and I was so fast that the the, the nose tackle caught me from behind and grabbed my shoulder and just kind of whipped my body. And as my body twisted, the uh, the safety was already airborne, and his, his face mask hit me right in the kidney oh. and tore the bottom third of it off. Oh. And so, uh, I, yeah, I bled for a while. Uh, actually, I was in the ICU for a couple of weeks after that, but. Wow. Yeah, so that, I still feel that every day. You know, it still functions. It's still, uh, you know, every, every time I get a CAT scan, people say, what the hell is that on your kidney? Because it looks like a big brain on the side. But I guess that's just scar tissue. Wow. But it still works. You know, they, they were going to take it out. And had they taken it out, my career was over in 1984. But I told the doctor, no, you're not taking it out. You know, just give me the morphine. Leave me alone. It'll heal. And I bled for I bled from Sunday to Tuesday night. Oh. They came in Tuesday, gave me a transfusion. And they said, uh, look, you're, you're dying. You know, we're going to have to operate. And I said, well, I said, just give me to the morning. I told him, I said, I feel it healing. <laughs> and uh, you feel overnight, this thing basically just, just closed itself up. Really? I mean, so I know there's, there's somebody looking out for me. They didn't want my career over at, uh, in 1984. So well, it was a good thing. <laughs> the, Bears, the Bears would probably never won a Super Bowl if I hadn't come back. That's right. Okay, so 1985. So you say you were you were good at the at the end of '83. You were obviously good in '84. You guys lost to the 49ers. Yeah, we ended up, you had a, a, you, yeah, we ended up going to the the uh, championship game. NFC Championship game with right. Steve Fuller. Yeah, and uh, he did a great job when he was filling in for me. Yep. We lost to the to the Niners then, but then '85. You know, that's everything kind of fell into place. Did you know? And I know you've been asked these questions a billion times, and I'm sorry for making it a billion and one. Did you know? I mean, you knew you were going to be good in 85, but you couldn't have known you were going to be like all-time historic good. At what point? Do you remember like an aha moment? Maybe it's the second, the third, the fourth game, or did you feel that all along, Jim? No, we've, you know, we had, we made that our mission after the 84 season that, you know, 85 was going to be our year. Everybody was, uh, you know, itching to get back to camp and, and uh, set set people straight we were very disappointed in our nfc championship game and uh we wanted to prove that we were a lot better so we came back and then uh, i think the the big turning point was might have been week number three i mean we were two and oh uh we went up to play the vikings who were one and one at the time it was on a thursday night and it was uh i had been in traction for a couple days in the hospital from the week before and i was not supposed to play in that game dick has said because I got out of hospital the day before uh, I got out on Wednesday mm-hmm. and uh, he said, you're not playing tomorrow night. I remember. And so yep. for the whole first half, I'm watching the game and I'm things that we, you know, we, we just weren't the same team. You know, I, I don't know what it was. I just felt that, you know, that they were not, we weren't the bears that we were the first couple of games. And I, so I got in Dick's ear and I just said, Hey man, you better put me in. We're going to lose this game. 
And for the rest of the first half and most of the third quarter, I was uh, in his face going, hey, you know, you better put me in. And, and, and I still believe to this day the only reason he put me in the game is get him out of his face because I was bugging the hell out of him. And, uh, you know, I came in and, and the, the first play I called in the huddle was it was an option, option screen pass. And uh, it actually wasn't an option. It was a it was a screen to the fullback. Yeah. And as I <laughs> I had so many muscle relaxers and painkillers in me, I almost fell on my face coming away from the center <laughs> on that first play, and they were blitzing. So blitz, you know, it's man to man defense. So somebody's going to run right to the fullback. So as I regained my balance, I just happened to look downfield, and there's Willie Gall out running his man off like he's supposed to do on a screen pass, and he's ten yards behind him. So I just threw it to him. Wow. We scored. And everybody's excited. And I come off the field. Vic is yelling at me. He says, what the hell play did you call? And I said, well, I, I actually called the screen, man. He goes, well, why'd you throw it to Willie? I said, because he was open. <laughs> and we scored. What's the problem? And so, uh, you know, we ended up getting the ball right back in a turnover. And then the second the second play was um, a bootleg, we call it. You know, fake can come around the end and supposed to hit the back in the flat or the tight end coming across. And uh, I ended up throwing it to the wide receiver who, who replaced the uh, the weak safety. Because I, I told the wide receiver, look, the only guy who can stop this play is the weak safety. If he jumps the tight end, you replace him. Right. And sure enough, the guy jumps the tight end, and, and there was nobody in the middle of the field. So easy touchdown there. And then you know a few plays later, uh, we get the ball back and we score again. So we ended up winning that game. But wow. I think that was the turnaround. Sure. And it should let everybody know, look, you know, we, we do have an offense. You know, everybody kept saying, oh, we were, we were a defensive team, but we were pretty damn good on offense as well. You sure were. 11 All-Pros on that team. 11 All-Pros on that team. Do you remember Do you remember when Ditka put in the fridge in the backfield for the first time? Was that in San Francisco? Where was that, and what was the idea? Do you remember talking about that, or was that a surprise to you? No, it was. Uh, we had practiced it. That all came about because in the 84 championship game, Bill Walsh put, uh, I believe it was Guy McIntyre, yeah. who was one of their guards, yeah. in the backfield late in the game, and they just ran it down our throats. And that was Mike's way of getting back at Bill Walsh, uh-huh. just putting the fridge in, in the game at the end. Because we went back out to San Francisco in 85 and beat him pretty good out there. Yep. Fridge got in late in the game, and, and uh, I think he got a yard on his first carry. So that was the whole start of that fridge circus. Yeah. It was just to get back at Bill Walsh. Did you throw to him at all? I think you threw a touchdown pass to him, didn't you? Yeah, yeah. Threw a touchdown pass to him in Green Bay. Um, you know, he scored a couple running touchdowns during that season. Caught a pass. He was even supposed to throw one in the Super Bowl. We had a play where he was going to roll out and throw the ball. And we actually called that play. And oh, God. thank God he didn't throw it. He ended up getting tackled <laughs> for a loss. But, yeah, it turned into quite a circus. A lot of people, he was a hell of an athlete. Yeah, I mean, was, for, yeah. for her, yeah, big. it was so, you know, to be 300 and something pounds at his, he was only like six, one, maybe six, two. Yeah. He was just basically round. I mean, it was, and it's hard to tackle a guy like that. And plus he could move. I mean, he was pretty damn quick. He was a good athlete when he weighed about 315. And then once he ballooned up, it was, you know, he could only play one play every five minutes. People were so sad that Walter didn't get a chance to score in the Super Bowl and Fridge did. Was too much made of that, Jim? Well, I think so. I think at the time nobody really realized it because, you know, the game was a blowout. But the New England's focus that whole week was, you know, we stop Walter Payton, we win. 
and that's what their focus was. I mean, every every time he carried the ball, he carried it, I think, around 27 times in the game. I, I don't know exactly, but every time he went anywhere, he had five or six guys chasing him. Uh-huh. So uh-huh. that's what opened up the rest of the, the team. Matt Suey had a big day. Uh, Emery Moorhead. Uh, Willie caught a couple big balls. Uh, but that was their focus. You know, we, we gave it to him down on the goal line a couple times, and uh, – it was he couldn't. It was nowhere near the goal line. Yeah. I think the first time that I scored, it was an option play. I faked the ball to Fridge, and it was either me or Walter. And as as I came out to the end of the line of scrimmage, the end guy just ran right to Walter. So I had to turn it up. Yeah. And scored. And then the other time I scored, we were on the like the half yard line. So that was a no brainer to do a sneak, quarterback sneak. Yeah. But we, you know, we thought we'd have plenty of time to get them in the end zone. You know, we came in at halftime saying, you know, let's put a hundred points on these guys. Dick was going, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then I think by the early in the third quarter, most of the starters were on the bench already. So Yeah, so that was it. Uh, the great Jim yeah. McMahon is with us. A couple more for you, Jim. Uh, as a long-suffering Dolphins fan, I'll never forget December 2nd, 1985. I know that you'll never forget it. It still remains as one of my favorite all-time sports events how disappointed were you guys that you didn't get a chance? You know, a lot of people don't remember, I do, that the Dolphins were one win away in the AFC Championship game of setting up one of the greatest rematches in all-time sports history in the Super Bowl. Did you guys, were you guys waiting for that? Were you looking forward to that? Did you care that it was the Patriots? Did you want the Dolphins in the Super Bowl? I would have liked to see the Dolphins personally because I didn't get to play that Monday night. It was another one of those situations where I missed one day of practice the week before. So Dick has said, oh, you're not playing Monday night. And I said, why? He said, well, because you missed Wednesday's practice. I'm like, yeah, but I practiced the last three days. And he said, no, you're not, you're not going to play. I was like, you know what? The hell with this. I'm, you know, we're 12-0 and already. We're in, the, we're in the playoffs. We've already secured home field advantage. It would have been nice to go undefeated. But, you know, at the time, the Dolphins, I think, they had the worst rush defense in the league that year. Walter probably could have rushed for over 300 yards if they gave him the ball. But we had gotten behind early, and Dick had kind of panicked, and we started throwing it, and, and we're just not a throwing football team. You know, we're, everything was based around the run. So I, I didn't I didn't bug him at all that night. I didn't say, hey, let me in the game. I said, you know what? I'm just going to sit here and enjoy this hmm. Miami deal on, on Monday night or Sunday night, whenever that game was. Monday but night, yeah. All I wanted to do was make sure that Walter got his record. He was going for – I think it's 10th or 11th hundred yard game in a row on the ground. And so I was, that was my job is just trying to make sure that he, you know, he got his record. So I was making sure that uh, I was counting the yards that he got. So with about six minutes to go in the game, we're down 14 points. Dickett decides to put me in and he said, okay, you're going in. I said, no, I'm not. He told me I wasn't playing tonight. <laughs> and so he was just kind of mad at me then. And I, he said, you're in the game. So I said, okay. And he, he gives me a pass play. Oh, no. Oh, no. And so I, I go in the huddle. Oh, and no. at this at this point, I'm thinking Walter has around 70 or 75 yards. We that that was record. my count. Yeah. And I get in the huddle. I said, look, boys, we're down 14 points. I said, who cares if we win this game? I said, we're already in the playoffs. We got home field. I said, let's get this man the record that he deserves. And to a man, they all said, hell yeah, let's do it. And so I called a running play. And, you know, at this point, the Dolphins are only rushing three and dropping eight. Yep. So a lot of a lot of room to run. As we're getting the line of scrimmage, Mike knows I didn't call the pass. And he starts yelling. 
and uh, <laughs> I gave it to Walter. He busted up there for you know ten, fifteen yards. Right. And uh, I didn't realize at the time we, we had another timeout. So Dick had burned the timeout. I had to go back over there and talk to him now. And he's just mfing me up and down the field. And I said, "Look, Mike, you know we just we just picked up fifteen. That you know we don't have anything in our passing game that gets us that many yards unless you just throw it deep, right?" Yep. I said, and now Walter only needs maybe 10 yards for his record. And he had no clue what I was talking about because mm-hmm. he was so mad at me. Mm-hmm. But it, it finally clicked in. He said, okay, okay, yeah, we'll, we'll get him his record. But first we're going to do this. And he gives me another pass. So I go in the huddle. I said, boys, it's really going to hit the fan now. But we're running this thing again. And they all just laughed. They said, yeah, let's go. So I, I called in another run. And, and when I, I looked over at Dick, and he knows I didn't call the pass. So now he throws his clipboard at me. He tries to throw the headset. And I uh, give it to Walter. He busted up there for another 10 or 15. I said, okay, now, now let's try to win the game. But oh, he did end up getting his record. We lost that game. But uh, I think it opened everybody's eyes and to refocus and, and uh, you know, finish strong down the stretch. And uh, I would have loved to, yeah, I'd love to. I think that would have been a hell of a lot better Super Bowl than the one we, we had. Did you guys either release or shoot the Super Bowl shuffle like the day after the Dolphins game? Did I read that right? Correct. Yeah, they had they had that scheduled for us to go in on uh, Tuesday morning. You know, we got back from Miami to Chicago probably, I don't know, 3, 4 in the morning. Guys had to be at the studio at, um, I think it was 8 or 9 that day. And uh, Walter and I both had told Willie Galt it was his idea with his friend of his, his that was in the music business. And, uh, you know, the premise was we're going to do a record. This is how it was explained to us. We're going to do a record. The proceeds will feed the homeless on Thanksgiving and, and Christmas. And so and we thought, yeah, that's, that's a nice, nice thing to do. So we agreed to do a record. And so we did the record. We did that probably a month before the, uh, they taped the video. And so a couple of weeks after the record, he comes to us and says, now we have to do a video. And Walter and I both said, no, that, that wasn't the deal. We did our end of the, our, you know, held up our end of the bargain. And so about another couple of days later, Willie came and said, hey, if you guys don't do it, we're going to have to sue you. So what wow. you saw on the, you know, wow. they, Walter and I had to do our parts after practice one day in the racquetball court at Hallis Hall. Oh, wow. So what you saw... What you saw for me was one pissed off white man having to do that, that uh, whatever we did. But that's how that came about. All right. Now, you can't go without talking about Super Bowl week. Did you have any fun? Everybody says that Jim McMahon is individually responsible for the most interesting and exciting Super Bowl week in New Orleans in the history, even to this day, in the history of Super Bowl weeks. I'm looking at a a Bob Hope story, obviously the mooning of the helicopter story, and then something scary happened that I didn't know about. Somebody reported or misreported that you had gone on some sort of a radio station. Tell us about that week. Yeah, it was uh, actually, it started out great. You know, we had no curfew all week, which is, which was a lot of fun. You know, New Orleans and no curfew was, we saw the sun come up a couple of days and then, uh, yeah, it was, uh, I remember I did the Bob Hope special. We were in Bob's suite. Uh, we did the show and then one of the nights, I don't know if it was the same night or it might've been the, the next night that, uh, we were kind of hungry. It was probably two or three in the morning. And I say, hey, Bob Hope has a suite with a lot of food in it. So we ended up going to his suite and, <laughs> and eating a bunch of food, woke him up. 
And then uh, that was probably on a Tuesday or Wednesday. And then Thursday morning, about, I don't know, 5.30, 6 a.m., the phone rings. And it was an irate fan, you know, just cussing me up and down. And I'm like, what the hell? I hang up. My roommate looks at me. Who's that? I said, I don't know. Five minutes later, it happened again. Same thing. Irate fan saying, oh, we're going to kill you. You know, you, you wow. called, you said this and this. And I'm like, wow, I, I don't know what the hell I did last night. But wow. I don't remember doing any of this. Yeah. And so I go down to breakfast and I'm standing in the line. And here comes our, our general manager. And he just walked by me and all he said was, oh, you really did it this time. That's all he said. So I still don't know what the hell I've done. And then Ditka finally walked up to me and he says, did you really say that? And I said, Mike, I don't know what everybody's mad at. I said, I got woken up this morning. I said, Jerry's pissed. I said, what did I say? And he goes, did you do a radio show this morning and call all the women of New Orleans sluts? And I looked at him like, what are you crazy? <laughs> I said, when, when was this show? And he goes, well, 6 a.m. this morning. I said, dude, I said, I didn't get back till 530. I didn't get up at six. And I certainly wouldn't say that to a reporter. Right, you know, it was right. just, it was just ridiculous. Right. And so for the rest of the week, we had women picketing the hotel. We had, oh you know, I was still getting threats. Nobody wanted me to stand, stand by me at practice because we practiced at the old Saints facility, which... Uh, there was an apartment complex that overlooked the whole field, and everybody thought I was going to get shot. Did somebody impersonate you, or what happened? I mean, no, the dude, the dude just made it up because he didn't like me. What dude? Some dude on TV some, or something? Some, yeah, some dude. Yeah, uh, his name was Buddy something. He went on. Hell, I can't remember. His it name. doesn't matter. He went on but, TV and said that Jim McMahon. So none of these women and these people that were picketed actually heard an interview with supposedly Jim McMahon. It was just a report of it, right? Correct. Oh, my God. Yeah, so then I had to, you know, I was supposed to, I was, and I had talked to the press every day like I was supposed to. I did my time, and I couldn't believe, how, you know, where this came from. And so my attorney actually was, he came down to New Orleans and said, look, you, you have to talk to the press. And I said, no, why should I talk to them? I said, they, they're going to make up whatever the hell they want anyway. Look what just happened. And so I finally agreed. I went down and said, look, guys, I, you know, I don't know what the hell, where this guy got the story, but, you know, it's not something I said. And I said, I've been talking to you people all week, and this is, this is how you treat me. I said, this is my last interview. So that was it. I didn't talk to anybody else until after the that game. Jim McMahon, do you regret any of this? Do you, and I'm not talking about the Super Bowl. When you, when you think back now, how old are you these days, Jim? I'll be 61 in August. When you think back to your career, you're not the type of guy that would regret anything. Do you regret any of your behavior? Or do you look back at it and smile and chuckle and glad that you did it your way? If you could snap your fingers and say, I'd like to have one thing over, it would be something. What, what, what do you think? Well, if I would, I don't think I can remember any of them. <laughs> I don't think I'd do anything differently other than not play some of the games that I played with the injuries that I had. But. Uh -oh. Other than that, no, I I would still treat the press the way they treated me, and uh, you know I, I didn't it didn't bother me what they said. So I would t talk to my teammates about it. I said, look, it doesn't really matter what they think of you or what you say. I said, if you went on Sunday, <laughs> all this goes away. It pretty much did. It's just some great stories. The most one of the most colorful players in NFL history. Finish up with us if you don't mind, because I know you've made the rounds a little bit on this. People have been asking you about it. The golf gambling with, with Jordan. Yeah, MJ and I used to play quite a bit when we were both in Chicago. And, uh, well, we were, we were playing at his, his club in Chicago. I think it was the Merritt Club. And uh, I was playing pretty good. You know, we had a $100 Nassau bet. If anybody knows golf, they know what that is. Yeah. And so uh, 
you know, it was a good bet for me at the time because I was still playing for the Bears and <laughs> they weren't paying a whole lot. Yeah. And I had little kids. So I'd probably have him down on the front side, maybe two or three bets. So when I teed it up on 10, I was getting ready to hit. And he said, OK, I'll play you this side for a million. <laughs> and he was dead serious. And uh, I said, you know what? I would love I would love to do it because I could use the million because I, I didn't even have a million dollars. <laughs> That's what I told him. I said, I said, for one, I don't have a million. And two, I said, for summer, you know, somehow you come back and end up winning. And then my kids don't go to college. So I said, no, I said, I'm not going to accept that bet. But you can keep, you know, jacking up the hundreds every time you want. So <laughs> end up winning that day. I was, you know, like I said, I, I was a much better player when I was younger, when I didn't know the game. Now that I understand the game, I'm worse at it. So how much did he hand you? Uh, I don't know. A couple grand. Okay. Wasn't that wasn't that big a deal? But he was dead. I mean, was, he was he was ready to him. <laughs> he was ready to play you for a million bucks on nine holes. Yeah. Unbelievable. Yeah, yeah he used to come to the house and we played a lot of pool together. He uh, yeah he took a little money. He's a pretty good pool player too. He just he just loves to gamble. I mean he's he's just so competitive. He just uh, yeah. And it really doesn't matter if it's one or a hundred. Or a million, because he just—he always said, "I just want to have your money in my pocket." That's, that's, <laughs> that's his—that's his deal. Well, Jim McMahon, it's great for you to visit with me again. You've done so in the past a few times, and I'm super appreciative. I hope your neck continues to feel okay. I hope you and your 60s continue to feel okay, and know that you put a lot of smiles on people's faces back when you played a lot of smiles not only were you a good football player but you were a fun guy a really fun guy to watch and uh, the game was better with you in it jim thanks for being with us on mitch unfiltered appreciate it very very much hey mitch my pleasure call me anytime brother there he is the super bowl champion quarterback of the chicago bears one of the greatest teams in nfl history that 85 bears team jim mcmahon who will ever forget the Super Bowl shuffle, and all the incredible personalities in and around that team. Joining us on the Zeke's Pizza Hotline is the president of Zeke's Pizza, Dan Black, who's celebrating the return of all 17 locations. How have the last couple of weeks gone for you and now into phase two, Dan? Um, you know, it's been good. It's been nice to have people back in the restaurants and on the patio as we went into phase 1.5 and now into phase two. What does that mean to Zeke's Pizza? What does that mean to all your clients? It's not a huge change, but it's a good one. The main, well, really the only change for us is, is that now dining rooms, they were at 25% capacity uh, in phase 1.5, so they're now at 50%. Dining rooms are at 50% capacity. Our patios are still at 50% capacity. Still no bar seating. Our dine-in and our patios have been busy since we're released from shelter-in-place, and it'll be nice to be able to have even more people in the dining rooms. Talk about the extra precautions that Zeke's Pizza is taking at these 17 great locations, Dan. Yeah, the main thing is, like I say, capacity on the patios and dining rooms is one thing, but the main thing really is the social distancing that happens in there, and that means... If you're at a counter service place, that means there's always going to be six feet apart while you're in line. But then the main thing with dining is all of the tables are at least six feet apart. And then, of course, we have hand sanitizer for all customers. Uh, all of our employees are in masks. You know, we're following the guidelines really closely and just making sure that it's safe uh, when people come in. 
but also fun. Talk to me about delivery. How have the numbers been the last few weeks since you guys started opening up restaurants? Yeah, you know, we were wondering if it was going to drop off at all, but it has stayed strong, which is good from us from a business standpoint. You know, we've been talking about beer delivery the whole time, and if anything, that's getting stronger. So, you know, it's been a good couple weeks. And do what President Dan Black does. Download the Zeke's Pizza app. It's very, very simple. We've got it here. In fact... You should know, Dan, that on high school graduation day, Max Levy, I said to him, anything you want, what do you want for dinner? And he said, I want Zeke's Pizza delivered for dinner. And that's what we had on graduation night. So we love it here at uh, the Levy household. Dan Black of Zeke's Pizza, great to have you back, Dan. Thanks, Mitch. Appreciate it. Zeke's Pizza, homegrown in the Northwest. Unfiltered. 162 games is the best barometer of whether a team's any good. In a 60-game free-for-all race to the finish, I know it could be really exciting, but the best teams aren't always going to win in that time frame. The Yankees are going to wear you down in 162 games. A subpar team in baseball, and only happens in baseball, can get really hot for 50 games, even 60 games, but not for 162. From the wild and crazy antics of the colorful former quarterback Jim McMahon to the bizarre reality of a 60-game Major League Baseball season. It is wonderful to welcome back our next guest on this 98th episode of Mitch Unfiltered. He's an author several times over in his 23rd year at ESPN. I say Tim Kirkjian, and we all immediately think baseball. Hi, Tim. Thanks for jumping back on. My pleasure, Mitch. How are you? I'm doing okay. Before we hear your words of anticipation for what's to come... Speak to us about the ugly process. Was there damage done between the sport and its fans? Are there hard feelings between the owners and players? Or is this just an all's well that ends well situation, Tim? No, this did not end well. They did not reach an agreement, which would have been, I thought, crucial to just to have a symbolic handshake. Hey, we're moving forward. We're doing this together. And we, we didn't even get that. And yes, it has done some immediate damage. It will damage portions of this season. And then the question is going to be how much damage is going to be done in the off season during free agency when you know the owners are going to say, well, we don't have the money we used to have because of the 2020 season. It's going to damage 2021. And, of course, the collective bargaining agreement has to be negotiated after 2021, which means this could this could go into 2022. So we're in trouble in baseball still. However, the great news is the way out of this is to actually play the games. So we can watch Mike Trout play. So we watch Garrett Cole pitch. I mean, that's what baseball can do is they can get rid of at least some of these hard feelings by letting us watch the players play. So we give up team pursuits of 100 wins, Tim, individual quests for 40 home runs and 20-game winners on the mound, and we get essentially near-playoff baseball every single night. Is that a good trade-off for now? Uh, well, I'd much rather play 162, obviously, but... At this point, under these extraordinary circumstances, I'll take anything. So I have 
I can make a really positive outlook at this season. 60 games, mad dash to the finish. Everyone has a chance, in theory at least, to make the playoffs. And then a complete free-for-all in October and a winner crowned at the end of October. Every game matters. There's no time for a slump. There's no time for an 0-7 start anywhere. Mm -hmm. That's going to be really appealing to a lot of people. Since I'm 63 years old, I'm getting used to it, but I repeat, (laughs) anything is better than nothing. Uh, So give me 60 games, bells and whistles, I don't care, as long as we get to watch baseball. Tim, from your information and where you stand, what's the COVID straw that you think breaks Major League Baseball's back and forces them to stop and reevaluate. Is it a teammate outbreak somewhere that leaves a squad without enough players to play? Is it a player, God forbid, getting seriously ill? Or do you think there's no scenario where they stop because of this virus? No, there are scenarios where they'll stop because of the virus. And I think an equally big question is, do they even start because of the virus? And I think we will. I think they'll play baseball this year, but there are dangers everywhere. There are roadblocks everywhere. And to answer your original question, what if somebody tests positive on a team like a week in, and then before you know it, an entire team's got it. And before you know it, that team can't even play. Now that's highly unlikely, but that's the worst case scenario is that one team is completely wiped out by it which then throws the rest of the season into complete turmoil. So there is so much more to be learned here, and we have a long way to go before we're going to get to a spot where everyone is confident that we're going to not only start on time July 23rd or so, we're actually going to finish on time also. There are so many fascinating layers, Tim Kirchian, to this 60-game dash, as you called it. We could spend all day. A couple of them that fascinate me – Many teams figure to be right in the mix come trade deadline time. Does that mean more wheeling and dealing or it's fool's gold with an asterisk next to 2020 anyway? So let's not give up any of our future in these trades. How is that going to be handled by the teams? Well, there'll be a trade deadline and there'll be some trades, but I don't think it will be nearly as active as some other years because So many teams will still feel like in this bizarre season that they have a chance and they're not going to give up uh, at the trade deadline because they know we're still in this thing. The trade deadline in in any other year, teams are 25 games out. They're done. They can't make the playoffs. So they move. So uh, is there an opportunity for the Marlins, let's say, or the Orioles or the Tigers, complete rebuilding teams to reset some of their finances by trading an older player who can help a contender? Absolutely. And I think that will happen. But I think there'll be far less activity because far more teams will be in it at the trade deadline. Everyone knows how differently managers manage playoff games, Tim, versus one of 162. They move runners over. They handle pitchers differently, unafraid to put pitchers in unusual situations. Is that what we're going to see from the beginning? Are managers going to be able to adapt to this crazy 60-game dash scenario, do you think? Well, 
it'll be a little bit more like the postseason than we're used to. But you can't do what you do in October for three months. That is all of all of August, all of September, and then expect that great starting pitcher you have who's already worked in relief five times the first two months in order to win some games and get him into the playoffs. You've got to be really careful the way that you use your roster. I think the managers are going to be under way more pressure this year to understand we got to win now. But do, in winning now, do I, do I use my everyday catcher every day? Do I bring back my starting pitcher a day early? Do I use that closer more often than I really should? Is that going to affect that player long-term? Is somebody going to get hurt badly by this? And if you do overwork them, even for two months, even for just – August, September, what kind of shape are they going to be in in October when you need them at their best? Just one of a million fascinating questions about a 60-game season. I suspect that as our collective attention spans continue to dissipate with social media and everything else, that the masses will love this dash, Tim. I know that you would prefer 162, but I think there's going to be a lot of people who like this, enjoy this, and want Major League Baseball to do something about the marathon, the typical marathon, to add some importance and some intrigue to the dog days of summer. Is there anything that you can think of that baseball can do to provide some more urgency to those midsummer's games in a normal season? Um, well, first off, I agree with you. I think a lot of people are really intrigued by 60-game Mad Dash to the finish. It has a March Madness quality to it, and people love that stuff. I disagree. Again, Sparky Anderson used to always tell me, 162 games, we play that many because that's the barometer. That's, your, that's yeah. what you deserve at the end of 162 is your final record. There are no excuses. You didn't run out of time. However, I think it's good that we're going to try all of these different rules, runner on second, 10th inning. I'm totally against it, by the way. (laughs) But if we're going to experiment with it, now is the time to do it during this strangest baseball season ever. Let's see if it works. I think it's a bad idea. But maybe a lot of people will catch on and say, this is a great idea. I'm open. I'm flexible. I understand where we are in the game. It's not as popular as it used to be. And if there's a better way to do it, count me in. But I'm not playing seven innings. We're not going (laughs) starting every count with one ball and one strike. And I'm not in favor of ending games in the 10th by putting a runner at second. But let's try it now. See what it looks like and see if any of it works long term. Could they ever reduce the regular season a little bit and maybe add a playoff team and expand the postseason? Do you see baseball ever considering such a model? Well, that's certainly possible. But let's not forget that every game means a lot of money to a lot of owners. I mean, I I would guess that most owners are going to make or most franchises are going to make close to a million dollars per game. And when you sell out your place in a big market, you're going to make $3 million a game. That's a guess, but that's roughly what we're talking about here. So the owners aren't going to be in favor of cutting eight games out, let's say, and going back to 154. Now, expanded playoffs is something that it will get everyone's interest, more teams in it, and more money in October. And that's where most of the – owner's money comes from is the playoff stuff in October. So 
yeah, it's, all sorts of things are going to be evaluated after this year. Right. I just hope we take a really honest look at all of them. Last question for the terrific Tim Kirkchian. So name a few teams for us, Tim, that would get, let's say, little to no attention if we were embarking upon a normal 162-game season. But because we're going to 60 and the way these teams are built could be factors in the uh, in the short race as a as opposed to the long one. Well, I, I think the White Sox are. I don't think they're a contending team, solid contender in 162 games. But they really upgraded their offense. They have some interesting pitching, especially coming back from injury. And that's a young team that could get out of the box real quickly in theory. Really gather some momentum. And we know this, Mitch. In baseball, you can get hot for 20 games. 40 games. You can even get hot for 60 games and not be a great team by any means. That's the American League team that I would look at and say, just keep an eye on them. They've got something going maybe over there. The National League, I I like where the Padres are. I love some of the moves they've made in the offseason. They've got young pitching all over the place. Another team with Fernando Tatis Jr., Manny Machado, that group coming flying out of the gates. They could catch fire also. That would be my American and National League team. And I think the bottom line is all of our sub-500 teams, with the exception of, say, the Marlins, Tigers, and Orioles, they're going to be a factor because that's the beauty of baseball. You can play really well for 50 games. You just can't keep it up for 162. You know, Tim, I better ask one more for the part of our audience that's here in the Pacific Northwest. Otherwise, I'll get in trouble. Where do you think the Mariners are how is Jerry DePoto doing? Are they moving in the right direction? And could the M's be one of those sleeper teams since we're playing a short season? I think they're going in the right direction. They're going with some younger guys. I kind of like the direction. but uh, And again, they got off to that great start last year. Who knows? What if that same start happens this year yep. and somehow they keep it up? I mean, that's what can happen in 60 games. Now, if you're asking me are they going to the playoffs for the first time since 2001, my answer is an emphatic no. But do they have a chance? They have a way better chance in 60 games than they did than they would in 162. You're a better man than you are a baseball guy, and you're a terrific baseball guy. The great Tim Kirkchian, watch him on ESPN. You can follow a little bit along with him on Twitter, hear him on ESPN Radio. Thank you so much for the visit, Tim. I hope you and your family are all well back east. Well, thank you, Mitch, and stay safe. The familiar voice of Tim Kirkchian, 23 years a baseball guy at ESPN and many, many, many years before that, writing for local newspapers around the country. 60 games beginning in late July. Will the Mariners, who you'd figured have no chance over 162, will the Mariners be a factor over 60? We'll have to kind of wait and see. It's time to catch up with the CEO of Daniel's Broiler. Here's our friend Lindsey Schwartz to give us some good news about the reopening of two more Daniel's Broiler locations. Lindsay? Yeah, that's right, Mitch. We finally got to open uh, two more. So we opened Bellevue, and then we opened Lake Union the night after that. And uh, we're off to a pretty good start. So far, so good. Okay, so what can you tell us about what we'll find at the three locations now? Less shy, Daniel's Broiler Bellevue and Lake Union in terms of how much capacity seating, how close will we be to the next party, all of that stuff. 
Sure, yeah. Well, King County has moved into phase two. Inside in the dining rooms, we can do 50% capacity. And outside on the decks and patios, we can do 50% capacity. Unfortunately, all three of those locations uh, have either decks or patios, and so that really helps. All the tables are six feet apart, so we've removed tables from the dining rooms to ensure that everybody's at least six feet apart. Uh, and then all the other things that, that, that we do to keep people six feet apart. We have signage. Uh, we have those, those decals on the floors for people to stand on when they're checking in at the front desk. Uh, of course, all of our team members are wearing masks and gloves. And now, you know, all guests are required to wear masks. And so we enforce that. We've got disposable menus. We've got hand sanitizer available throughout the restaurant. And we thoroughly sanitize the tables in between each use and thoroughly sanitize uh, all the common areas, areas on a regular basis. So we're taking it very seriously as, uh, as you would expect us to. So now that South Lake Union and Bellevue are open, that means delivery from those two spots as well, correct? That's right. Yeah. All three spots are work with DoorDash as our third party delivery company. So it's available from all three. So that's expanded our geographic footprint for delivery since we've opened an additional two locations. And then all three are available for pickup. And what's cool about pickup is you can also do beer, wine, and even cocktails for the pickups. 40th year anniversary of Daniel's Broiler, part of the fabric, as I like to say, of the Pacific Northwest. And we're celebrating with $40 bottles of Vouve Clicquot. But that is, is that only Les Shy, or is that available at the other two locations that are now open as well? That's only at Les Shy for now. That's the first restaurant. It's, it's actually, that's the one that's celebrating the 40 year anniversary. And so we've got it limited to that for now. That may change at some point. But right now, if you want the $40, Move, you go get it at Leshai. I got to say that everybody's itching to go back to restaurants, and we've all missed a lot of special occasions, and there is no better place to celebrate your special occasion, whether it's a birthday or an anniversary, a graduation dinner. You've got to do it at Daniel's Broiler now with three locations back open, South Lake Union, Leshai, and Bellevue Place, Daniel's Broiler, world-class steakhouses. Unfiltered. The pursuit for justice for Julius Jones, that's amazing. A 19-year-old college student at the time, Jones was found guilty of the 1999 murder of Paul Howell, who was shot to death in the driveway of an Edmond home. He spent the past 20 years at the state pen and still maintains he's innocent. In 1999, a 45-year-old Oklahoma man named Paul Howell was shot in the head in a car in his parents' driveway in Edmond, Oklahoma. A 19-year-old black man named Julius Jones was arrested, charged, and in 2002 convicted of the murder. He's been on death row for the last 18 years. Jones and his family continue trying to convince anyone who'll listen that they've got the wrong guy and this has more than touched the professional sports community the oklahomans kayla branch has been on top of this story better than anyone kayla thanks for joining us on mitch unfiltered yeah thanks for having me so fill in the blanks and ultimately share with us how and why stars like blake griffin and russell westbrook trey young buddy healed baker mayfield are involved in all of this right so 
The story has been going on for, you know, over two decades because it was actually the summer of 1999 when Jones was arrested for uh, the alleged murder of the Edmund man, Paul Howell. And he was convicted in 2002. And at that point, Jones was 19 years old. He was a student athlete at the University of Oklahoma, and he had you know, been home for the summer. And what we heard happened is that he and uh, one of his friends had been in the Edmond area, which Edmond is a wealthy, predominantly white suburb of Oklahoma City, and that they had gone to the home of 45-year-old Paul Howell, and they had shot him and then stolen his car. And the way that police were able to, to track back to um, Jones and, and another man was through um, a car chop shop. And they worked some of their leads. And eventually they found a, you know, a lead that said that Jones had been involved and that a gun, the murder weapon, was in his house. And so police end up, you know, executing a warrant. They search his house. They you know, find the murder weapon. Jones is arrested uh, and waits till 2002 for a trial. And the entire time, um, even to today, Jones and his family have maintained his innocence in this crime. Um, and they say that the other man that um, was also involved was actually the person who committed the crime and essentially framed Julius Jones for what happened. And the other man, his name's Chris Jordan. They said that he actually you know, hid the gun in Jones's house uh, and that he, he ends up taking a plea deal later and not getting you know, convicted uh, and sentenced to death like Julius Jones did. So through the years, uh, the case after it happened in the early 2000s, really kind of went quiet in terms of, you know, national attention. Uh, a core group of Jones's family members and close friends, they continue trying to work with lawyers to appeal Jones' case, which they say has, was marred uh, with deficiencies. And that includes um, his defense team being extremely inexperienced. Key evidence that was not shown to the jury, there was only one eyewitness account of the shooter, and it was the man's sister. And she said, you know, it was a person that was wearing um, you know, this, and they had longish hair. Um, and a photo of Jones at the time showed that he did not match the description with the length of hair, but evidence like that was never shown to the jury. And Jones was also not ever able to testify during his own trial. Through the years, evidence has come forward that some of the jurors were racist and um, saying, you know, terrible things about Jones and, and basically that they had already made up their mind on uh, how they would, would decide to vote on the case. Those appeals have never worked, um, even so far as going to the U.S. Supreme Court to say, you know, there were these deficiencies and there was racial bias in the case. The, the Supreme Court in uh, 2019 uh, denied that appeal and didn't really give a reason. They just denied it. So at this point, Jones has He's used all of his appeals, so, so that process is done. But a, a key part of the renewed advocacy around his case and the renewed interest in why we see national figures and prominent athletes coming forward to ask for his release was a documentary series right. titled The Last Defense, right. which debuted in 2018. And that really chronicles in detail and in depth all of um, the inconsistencies in Jones's case, just 
the facts of what happened and uh, the different tactics that his legal teams have tried to use to get him out. And it really highlights the fact that um, a lot of folks, increasingly so, that are on death row um, because of DNA evidence or you know, other avenues, they are exonerated and they were set to be killed for a crime that turns out they really didn't commit. And so the documentary kind of leaves that question of, you know, if he got this faulty trial, can we really sentence him to death? And that's resonated with people. I mean, really, it has resonated with folks. After the documentary aired, hundreds of people marched at the Oklahoma State Capitol to protest for his release. The U.S. Congressional Black Caucus wrote letters. Um, hundreds of letters have been written to Jones in prison. And locally, we've seen church groups and, and other community leaders and advocates get together and show the documentary and talk in schools. And so um, there's just been a lot of activity around the case since then. And, and they're hoping that, you know, before executions resume in Oklahoma, that they can get some movement on Jones's case. That documentary in 2018 caught the attention of NBA star Blake Griffin, who went to the University of Oklahoma, is from that area. And as I understand it, didn't Blake Griffin's father coach Julius Jones when he played high school basketball? He did, yes. And I was actually able to talk to Tommy Griffin about Julius Jones and the case. Um, and like you said, Blake Griffin wrote a letter to Governor Sid asking for uh, Jones to receive commutation and, and be released. And he pointed to, you know, our families were close. My dad uh, coached Jones in basketball when he was in high school. And uh, Tommy Griffin, uh, Griffin's father, he said, you know, my kids were around uh, the team and he always felt like Jones was somebody who um, was very respectful, was you know always really on top of what he was supposed to be doing, and that he thinks they should reopen the case and really look at it strongly um, because he just wasn't sure uh, that the Jones that he knew would be capable of doing something like that. So we have a story of racial bias. We have a story of a flawed investigation. We have a story of an ill-equipped defense. Uh, and during this time, obviously, we're going to scrutinize these things very, very closely. How about sharing to our audience or for our audience, Kayla, the horrific story of what allegedly happened in the police car the day Jones was arrested, that there's an allegation that the officer who was transporting him to the Edmond Police Department stopped the car and gave him a chance to run told him to run. Okay, yeah, I think I've heard a little bit about that as well, but it was really more of kind of a taunt, you right, know. That's right. Just run and, right. and, and see what happens. Right. Um, and I think, you know, all of, all of that, like you mentioned, especially right now um, with the backdrop that we have about protests against police brutality and just more broadly um, some of the injustices and inequalities that members of the black community face, um, that is definitely something that we've seen resonate with folks here. I mean, even uh, Oklahoma City's Black Lives Matter chapter, when it came with making demands of the city to make reforms against police actions just like that, uh, they actually included a request of commutation for Julius Jones on that list. It, so the two may seem unrelated, but like you just pointed out, they're really not. It's a system that um, folks have said has been going on for years and years. The story of the racist juror and the claim that was made to the U.S. Supreme Court, Kayla, one of the members of the jury, which was, by the way, there was only one 
black member of the jury, from what I read, and one of the other members kind of uh, shed the light of some racist behavior amongst the jury before the trial even began. But that claim was rejected by the U.S. Supreme Court, correct? It was, yeah, and they didn't give any reason for it. It it was denied uh, without a statement, so... They're not totally sure, um, you know, what what the deal was there. But what I've heard from lawyers um, was that there's a lot of just legalities and technicalities that can trip you up when you're trying to appeal a case. Um, And just to go into more detail, according to his attorneys, um, there was a, a racist juror who was on the case even after another member of the jury reported him and said that, um, he thought that the case was just a waste of time and that they should just take the quote inward out and shoot him behind the jail is what a report states that that juror said. And they were allowed to stay on the jury and make a decision in the case. But yeah, that appeal has been rejected as something that, you know, was, was problematic and could reopen the case. Um, so right now there aren't too many avenues for Jones before executions resume in Oklahoma and an execution date is set for him. Um, Every inmate in Oklahoma that is on death row three weeks before their execution date, they get something called a clemency hearing, which is basically a review by the state's pardon and parole board of the details of their case to see, should we go ahead with this execution or should we reopen the case? Should we grant them release? You know, whatever it may be. It's just a review of the case. So he'll definitely get that. But his lawyers have also taken um, a really unprecedented step and asked for something else called a commutation hearing, which is similar, but it's a much shorter process. Um, But I think at this point, they're just trying to do whatever they can um, to keep Jones from having an execution date set and, and carried out. And the reason he doesn't have an execution date already, as I understand it, Kayla, is because Oklahoma executions were put on hold there was some turmoil or disruption to the system, and they were all put on hold in 2015. That is correct, yeah. So Oklahoma had a series of botched executions where they accidentally used the wrong drug um, in the execution process, and that was obviously a, a horrible thing that happened. And so the state just cut off doing executions for the last five years. And they said they were going to find a different way to carry them out. And this spring, they announced that they were going to resume executions and that it would happen, you know, as early as this fall and that they had found someone to supply the correct drug for the procedure. And and so that was big news for uh, the media here. We weren't expecting it to happen. But it, but it did. And right now we're just waiting. Um, there's a legal proceedings going forward where um, attorneys of folks on death row can question what the proceedings are going to look like. So that's happening right now. But again, it could be as early as this fall that um, all of those legalities are taken care of and execution dates um, resume. The Oklahomans, Kayla Branch is on the Zeke's Pizza hotline on the Julius Jones death row story. So you have all these high profile athletes like the Griffins, like Russell Westbrook, like Trey Young, Buddy Heald, uh, Baker Mayfield, all of them having ties to the state of Oklahoma. Uh, Help us understand now the process. There's a pardon and parole board, I guess. There's obviously the governor, Kevin Stitt. Is there any 
Is there any evidence, Kayla, that these people are listening? Uh, do we have any idea whether the, the fist pounding on the table of some of these celebrity folks is being heard by the governor of Oklahoma? Yeah, I think so. Um, you know, you've got uh, online petitions that are circling around that have nearly six million signatures. Wow. And then Oklahoma, just as a state, is very sports focused. We love our athletes here. And so to have folks that are so high profile coming back and saying, hey, you need to look at this. I think that really does resonate um, with state officials, with you know the governor and definitely with just the common folks who live here. So, like you mentioned, yeah, there is this process, the state's pardon and parole board right now, and they are awaiting a decision from the state's attorney general on whether or not they can actually grant Jones a commutation hearing, which is, again, that shorter um, process that would review his case and decide if he could be granted early release. Um, It's not necessarily uh, the ideal process. Inmates only get about two minutes to talk to the pardon and parole board about their case and why they should be released. And most say, you know, that's not adequate time to go over a full murder trial and talk about all of these inconsistencies and deficiencies and that, that folks have pointed to. Um, But they don't even know if they'll be able to do that because he is the first death row inmate in the state to request a commutation hearing. So we're waiting to see if legally they can even give him one. And then if they can, what do they decide? If they decide, yes, we do recommend him for commutation, then it'll be up to Governor Kevin Stitt to to grant that to him officially. So there's still a long road there. And if they don't even allow him to have that commutation hearing, then he'll only have the clemency hearing three weeks before his future execution date um, to review his case. And this co-defendant who turned on Julius Jones and testified against him and took a plea deal, he changed his story over and over again. I read somewhere six six different times he changed his story. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there were a lot of inconsistencies uh, that folks said, you know, look, this guy... He didn't have a clear story when he was talking to police and when he was uh, you know, talking on trial. He wasn't saying things that added up. But Julius, you know, when he was giving his story, uh, it has maintained the same thread through the years. Um, and so folks have said, yeah, like this isn't fair. What happened here wasn't fair. And um, a lot of folks say, you know, we're not even saying that we're questioning, you know, whether he did it or not. We're beyond that. We're questioning, did he even get a fair shot that all citizens in America deserve to have a fair trial? Did he even get that? And most people say that the answer is no. Well, that is the ultimate shame. The Oklahomans, Caleb Branch, updating us here on all the, the happenings in the Julius Jones story. It's a story that's worthy of our attention, and we will keep uh, we will keep close monitor on on what happens here as the days and months go on. Kayla, thank you very, very much for joining us on Mitch Unfiltered. We appreciate it. We hope we can call upon you again sometime. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I appreciate you. Kayla Branch of the Oklahoman, the Julius Jones saga that has captured the attention of the nation, including professional athletes that have connections to the state of Oklahoma, like Blake Griffin, Russell Westbrook, Baker Mayfield is a man sitting on death row for the last 20 years for a crime he didn't commit. Keep an eye on this one. I always look forward to my conversations with Jordan Flowers, even the ones on the golf course. Jordan, what's going on with the Kirkland office at Guild Mortgage these days? 
It is busy times right now, Mitch. Everybody is fielding calls left and right, doing pre-approvals for buyers, lowering people's interest rates, helping people get cash for home improvement projects or paying off any debt. It is a busy time. People are setting records. Give us a sense of the real estate inventory, pending sales numbers. Can you tell us where we are in the midst of all this? Yeah, it, uh, it's interesting what's going on right now. We weren't sure how it was going to play out with COVID coming in and uh, what people would be doing with listings and selling their home and buying, but it really has not skipped a beat. Uh, there might have been a little slowdown in March, but every realtor I'm talking to is expecting kind of a second spring market, and we're already seeing that in action. Inventory is sitting at about 1.8 months, which basically means if no new inventory came on, there'd only be about a month and a half of homes that could be purchased. So you're seeing a lot of offers, very competitive situation, prices escalating. So if you are thinking about selling, actually, it would be a great time to connect with your realtor, or if you want to get connected with some of the top realtors in town, please call me and I can connect people with them. doesn't hurt to find out what the property is worth right now and what you might be able to get for it if you've been thinking about selling and moving somewhere else. It's a great time. And Jordan, if I'm a buyer or if I'm looking at a refinance and I've got great credit, what numbers am I looking at at this moment for a 30-year fixed? Yeah, again, all dependent upon down payment, credit scores, but we are looking in the high twos and low threes right now on a 30-year fixed. And if I want to learn more about any of the things that you just talked about, I can call you directly, right? Please call me directly. Somebody will answer in the office or you can call my cell phone directly. Cell phone is 425-890-2957. And the office line is 425-250-3145. Perfect. That's Jordan Flowers in the Kirkland office of Gill Mortgage. Unfiltered. All right, three interviews, including the quarterback of the 1985 Chicago Bears, Jim McMahon. We'll do another stuff segment. I can't wait to hear on 90AP what you thought of the McMahon interview. I can't wait to hear it. He's right up my alley. I you love, are the gonna love the anti-establishment sto- guys. Oh, love you're going to love the The Rebels. Story. Oh. Love it. His relationship with Ditka. He just... Oh, I can imagine. He just drove Ditka crazy. But what are you going to do? They're like winning every game. So what's what's Ditka going to do, right? You know you have leverage. I love the fact that he and Walter Payton refused to do the... Originally refused to do the, the, the Super Bowl shuffle. Oh, they had sense. They had some, some common sense. <laughs> but then they were forced to do it. And then he had a line in it and so forth. But you'll, you'll listen to it. Anyway, the other stuff segment, episode... Episode 98. You want to start? Yeah, I'll start. But okay. I got to tell you a quick story. I, I meant to tell you when we were talking about going in the locker yeah. room. It just made me laugh for yeah. some reason. Yeah. Luis Soho was a Luis mariner. Soho. Everybody scores. That's right. It was, it, the, we the were inside playoff. the park home run yeah, with three like errors <laughs> or something. <laughs> yeah. He's sitting there talking to Felix Fermin. And I'm going to see if I can get Soho on, whoever's right. on the air at the time at KJR. Right. So I go over and politely ask him, hey, uh, any desire, <laughs> you know, good chance to come on? And he yeah. looks at me and goes, oh, sorry, uh, my English is no, no good. English. Yeah. yeah, I don't, you know. I was like, okay, what, what am I going to argue with him, right? So I start to walk away, and I hear him talking to Felix going, hey, man, so tomorrow, do you think you want to come down? His English was totally <laughs> fine. 
How long has he been using that cockamamie excuse? There's a lot of guys that did that. Ichiro did it. Yeah. The, the, yeah. the, the most legendary athlete, I think, that ever did that, hid behind not speaking English, even though he spoke English, I believe, was Roberto Duran. Remember, you were hands of stone, oh, Roberto, sure, Duran. Roberto Duran. No oh, Moss. Oh, my God. Is he no Moss? He, yeah, no Moss. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. He refused to do <laughs> interviews because he didn't speak English. Like, he, yeah. he lived here for 45 years. <laughs> And I remember, I remember we actually threw a party in Miami Beach years and years ago. My dad was still alive. We threw a party for my, my oldest brother, Jay, in, a, in like a restaurant in Miami Beach in a back room. Okay. We had his friends and whatever. And Roberto Duran, Jay's a big fight fan. Roberto Duran was like, I don't know, probably 50 at the time. And he was in the restaurant, just coincidentally. Wow. He was in the first part of the restaurant when we were back there. So we were like, get him back here. Get him back here to say happy birthday to Jay. So yeah. he and and I, I remember like... <laughs> Saying to him, come on, come after he got there. All these years, though, and I was, I had had a couple pops. Like, all these years, this whole nonning, come on. Yeah, yeah. And he like gave me the crazy sign. And he like whispered in my ear, you're crazy, man. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Roberto Duran. That's a great, great way to get out of an interview, though. Is there, what are you <laughs> no going to say? What are you going to say? You're not going to no argue with him. Uh, all right. Do you want to talk about the, the new name of the Key Arena? Oh, my God. <laughs> do we have to? We don't have to. You think everyone's seen this Are we going to piss now? people off? Because well, I mean, we're kind of supposed to like it. It's the new NHL team. We're supposed to be psyched about well, everything that's coming to town. Well, it's a bizarre name for it's a stadium. Awful. It's an awful name for a stadium. What is it called? It's going to be called Climate the Change Arena. Climate Pledge Arena. Climate Pledge Arena. Yes. The CPA. The CPA, yeah. The accountants oh, and the whole God. thing. Why didn't they, This is a, a program that Amazon has. Well, right. I thought it was super silly at first. And then I started reading about that. It's going to be powered 100% by renewable electricity when it opens. I like so, all that. I like that, too. I do. Right. I, what I'm saying is I don't like the name. You don't have to call it that, though? No. It's kind of braggy? Not only braggy, it just sounds stupid. <laughs> yeah. It's terrible. Climate Pledge Arena? It's awful. <laughs> I can't believe it. I'm, I'm actually reading social media, and I, and I actually read people that like the name. I mean, you can like why they're naming it that. You yeah. can like the whole the whole situation. How this this is going to be a state of the art arena, and it's going to have zero carbon footprint. Like it's going to have great. this environmentally sound uh, footprint that no other. I, you can like all of that. Yeah, I'm just saying, climate pledge arena. Arena. Yeah, that's the name of it. It's awful. Or I guess that's the, the worst name I've ever heard <laughs> on, a, on an arena. Come on, Climate Pledge Arena? It rolls off the tongue, doesn't it? Oh, it's it? terrible. <laughs> so, yeah, I guess what you're saying is you can have all that. Oh, yeah, I love the fact that but, we're, I'm, uh, that we're, but you don't have to name it Climate Pledge yeah. Arena. There's got to be some other way, to, uh, some other name. Right, Come just, on. Just do it. Just do what you're going to do oh and then name God. it something else. I saw somebody on, on I know people are, are going after Bezos about this because he's going to fly in on his private plane and then helicopter over and he's worried about the climate. You know, people are always going to poke holes in it. So, yeah. Can we, uh, you know, I wouldn't be, why don't they just call it Amazon Arena? Well, yeah, they totally could, but I think it's a little braggy. Like, look what we're doing. Maybe they'll change it after a year or oh, so. Oh, God. I know. It's an awful name. Climate Pledge Arena. <laughs> so weird. Yeah. Just sounds terrible. Yeah. Ezekiel Elliott is back in the news. I think I may have seen something about that. Sued for more than $200,000 by a pool cleaner who was attacked. She was attacked by his Rottweiler and Bulldogs. Uh, I was at a friend's house and they had a pit bull. And I remember thinking like this dog looks sweet as can be, but you just never know sometimes when those dogs <laughs> we had are, a Doberman. Are you right? Growing up. They're, they, they're great, but that 0.1% time they snap, it's not good. Well, she was attacked. They had to take her to the... 
got to take her to the hospital. She had emergency surgery on her arm. She reached out to Zeke Elliott and his people to try to resolve the matter, and he ignored them. Completely ignored them? Completely ignored them. Not, I'll pay for the bills? No, completely ignored them. Didn't even respond. Didn't even respond, which led her to file a suit against the Dallas Cowboy running back. The woman said she went to the emergency room and required surgery on her arm. Uh, It's greater than $200,000. Their response now that there's a lawsuit is... She was unauthorized to be on the premises the day of the incident and either willfully disregarded and or negligently ignored her employer's policy, which required Elliot to be notified in advance of any visits. We look forward to further establishing the plaintiff's contributory negligence during the course of this matter. So essentially, I don't know if you ever had a pool, but people who clean pools on a regular basis, they just... They just come clean. Right. They don't knock. They just show up and clean. Sh- right. You look in the backyard, and there's the pool cleaner. Right, right, right. Yeah, well, the dogs were not happy when the pool cleaner came. And he's saying, well, we didn't know that she was coming. And she's saying, I was going to clean the guy's pool. Right. And a lot of us would say, does it really matter whether you knew? She's your pool cleaner. Right. Okay, she didn't tell you she was coming. Your dogs attacked her. You just signed a what? Million dollar, hundred million dollar contract? Yeah. How about paying the one? How about... How about just responding to her when she says, hey, I was attacked by your dogs. I'm right. in the hospital right now. Wouldn't you be sort and of say, curious? Hey, can, I, can I please pay your bill? I mean, right. I mean, just be nice about it. <laughs> right. She may actually get but more Zeke than Kelly, it's kind of like one of those guys you love to hate. So, yeah, he's a Dallas cowboy. You love to hate. him. Yeah. Oh, right. I'm, I'm, so I'm taking her side on this. Yeah. I mean, anytime anytime to take her side someone's getting attacked at your house. Don't you kind of want to be on, on the inside Especially and understand if why you are? I mean, it's not like some random person. He she's right. Her, She's the pool cleaner. It's been established. His pool cleaner. She's been to the house before, oh, right? Yeah, many times. You're right. Okay. Not the first time. Not <laughs> no. a new. They just didn't know she was coming on that day. So it's her fault. All right. So. So it's so she's fair game. She can be attacked by the, the right. dogs. She's fair game. She didn't say she was coming on that day. We didn't know she was coming. Fair game. What if a five-year-old wandered in off the street <laughs> in your pool and drowned? Is that you just, your hands are uh, clean? I'm just saying. All right. So I'm next time saying. Brett punches me in the chest on my way out of here, I'm going to come after you. I'll let you, you know. Okay. You do that. All right. I don't know You'll if you hear saw my attorneys. If you saw this this Dory Monson stuff on Twitter. No, but you mentioned something to me a couple of couple of days ago. So Dory Monson, for those who don't live in Seattle, because we're big in St. Louis, as you know, huge in St. Louis, yeah. folks. Hello, San- St. Louis. Hello. That's right. Thank you, Larry. Yeah. Dory hosts a talk show on 97.3 Cairo FM, yeah. which for is a long, 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 time. long time. Yeah, I don't know, 25, 30 years? Probably longer than, than me when I started. He was probably there before I started. So it's probably 30 years. Yeah. yeah. So he, he, he's also the, the pregame, halftime, and postgame host of the Seattle Seahawks. Is that's he not? right. Every, every game. Because that, that conglomerate of radio stations is the partner of the Seattle Seahawks. Right? That's right. I've always thought it was a bit of a weird choice. Why not get a sports guy yeah. to do that? But he's but, kind of a sportsy guy. He's, a, he's like, like a, a, a women's basketball coach. He and, is. Yeah. High school basketball coach, yeah, I so think. so you know a little bit about him. Yeah. <sighs> Somebody is tweeted he in trouble? Out, well, not officially in trouble. But this guy named Nate Bowling sent about 10 tweets out. Oh. And he was essentially saying that Dory, no Seattle media figure has been more consistently dismissive of pleas for justice from the black community than Dory. Really? That's what this, On his radio show? On his radio show where, he, you know, it's a talk show. You give yeah. your opinion. Like, you know, yeah. he's, he's not doing news updates. He no. gives his opinion. No, right. During the recent wave of protests, the Seahawks have made multiple public deco- declarations of their support for the Black Lives Matter movement. Of course. This guy's suggesting those two don't, they don't necessarily mix. mix. Correct. So 
He, this guy actually is this just a random listener, or is this some some guy in an official capacity? No official capacity. Do we know what that what he's saying is true? That that on his radio show he's been less than compassionate when he when it when it comes to racial equality, or do we not know? Is this guy just hurling stones? He's not just hurling stones because he actually gives receipts, as they say. So everything what are receipts? Everything he says, he backs up with a video or oh. an audio clip of Dory talking okay. about it. All right. So I went back through and listened. And right. He's not wrong in that, you know, Dory has his opinions. Um, you know, he says he rarely messes up or passes up an opportunity to blame a black person for their own death at the hands of the police. And I went back and listened to one of his clips from 2016 about a woman named Charlena Lyles. She was pregnant, mentally ill woman and was shot and killed by the Seattle police in 2017 in front of three of her kids. All right. Now, the police say she had something in her hands and came towards them. So they shot her. Nonetheless, this guy doesn't like Dory. His reaction to that story. Right. You could be a little more sensitive about it. There was another story about, I don't know if you saw this thing at, at the public libraries. They were having, you know, um, it's called Local Drag Queen Storytime at the Renton Library, where these different drag queens would go in and read stories to kids. All right. Dory says, can anybody in their right mind explain to me how our taxpayers are paying for drag queen storytime at the Renton Library? Not happy about it, all right? Librarian says, it's not tax dollars, Dory. They didn't pay for it. It's sponsored by the Friends of Renton Library. So he's been very outspoken. He has his opinions, like we all do on the radio or on podcasts. Sure, and he's allowed to him. He's allowed to him. The question is, do you then get to go be a non-partisan journalist on the weekends? To me, it feels like he's sort of trying to have it both ways. And I don't know how you... Now, I was thinking about you. You did Sonic Sidelines when you first got to... I did. I did. I did it for a year, yeah. A year? Yeah. What year? 96? The year they went to the NBA Finals. Okay. Your show, they I, went because of me to the NBA well, Finals. Yeah, <laughs> I, that goes without saying. <laughs> your show started getting some traction in the mornings. You had your opinions. And then you, yeah. you weren't asked back the next year. And who knows why? Maybe you know the answer. Well, we've talked about this. I, I, I always thought that Kevin Calabro didn't want me back. Okay. Yeah. But maybe that's why. Because you, you have... Maybe. Maybe. Yeah. I don't know. It just seems like he's trying to have it both ways. Like, I know I talked a so lot. So you of, can't be, a, you're saying you can't be a talk show, ho- an opinionated talk show host, and then be a pregame, postgame, and halftime host. Uh, that's sort of what I think. I mean, I, I really? can't think of any examples where that's worked. Like, I don't Well, know. it's obviously worked with Dory Monson for the last 25 years. So far. So far, yeah. So is Not this, last 25 years, Okay, but yeah. so this person who is blowing the whistle... Has he gotten any traction? I mean, have the Seahawks talked about it? Is anybody else talking about it? Anybody agreeing? Is there is there any kind of uh, a movement to remove Dory Monson as the as the whatever he is for yeah. the Seattle Seahawks? It feels like it's getting some traction, and he, of course, he's tagging the Seahawks and tagging Cairo and tagging everybody. Does he react? Has Has Monson reacted? I to haven't this? seen Dory's reaction to it yet. Do you know him as a radio host? I mean, do you listen to him? As a radio host, do you know? Are you familiar with his show, with his antics, with his whatever he is? I'm, I'm his opinions. Mildly familiar with okay. him. He's not really my cup of tea. Yeah, but I knew him a little bit because I worked at Cairo. For Hell two of a years. nice guy. He's right? always been nice to me. Always nice. Always very friendly. I, I definitely don't agree with a lot of what he says on the radio, which is fine. I'm sure. See, he- I don't know that I've re- I, I've heard him for years and years on the Seahawks stuff. Yep. You know, driving to the game, driving away from the game. I can't remember. I'm sure I have at some point in my 25 years in Seattle heard him on his regular day job. Yeah. But I don't remember ever hearing him. 
I don't remember ever tuning him in, so yeah. I, I don't know that I've ever listened to his actual uh, daily talk show. So I don't know really much about his politics, his opinions, his angles. Yeah. I just know him as Dory, who speaks to the guys getting ready for the Seahawks game and interviews the guy that's uh, raising the 12th man flag. That's right. That's that's how I know him. That's how I know him mostly, too, because I listen so all the time. I, I, can't, I can't answer. What, what's going to happen in all this? I don't know what's going to happen. I have a feeling he won't be on the broadcast. That's just my really? opinion. Think just Seahawks my opinion. I think they're going to take mm. him off. I mean, you know, you, you talk shit for a living for 23 years. I did? <laughs> well, I mean, so did I. <laughs> I had a program director tell me that because I was associated with the T-Man show, he can't hire me. Like, I, we get that there's, there's another side to going out there and giving your opinion, right? I mean, yes. it, it would be tough to hire Mitch Levy in 2005 because of the stuff you say on your show. No, you know, not going to work for the Seahawks, I think. And I think we all know that going into it. We, we all sort of made a deal with the devil in a way. Yeah. It's a great way to make a living, talking yeah. crap. Well, but let's wait and see whether he's uh, on the air with the Seahawks in 2020. I mean, during this time in 2020, I'll be very surprised if he is. Interesting. Yeah, and I'm going to keep it on But we have this. not heard from the Seahawks yet, officially. I haven't seen anything. It might be out there, but I haven't seen anything from the Seahawks. And it's more than this one guy. There's a lot more people that are jumping on this guy's bag bandwagon. A lot and of- the Seahawks are not going to listen to one guy. Correct. He's, right. I, for some reason, this guy has like 20,000 followers. Oh. So I, so, wow. he's, so he, there's a lot of comments. Like, I'm glad you brought this wow. up. It's about time. Seahawks, are you listening? Well, in the same vein... The Democratic Party of Orange County, California, has passed an emergency resolution. Do you know what it is? No. They are renaming the Orange County Airport. It's now the John Wayne Airport, but it will no longer be the John Wayne Airport. Did you, did you even know that the airport in Orange County is the John Wayne Airport? I actually love that airport because no one's ever there. <laughs> if you need to get out of L.A. Is John Wayne there? He's never there either. Did you know it was called John Wayne Airport? I did, yes. Yeah. It's a nice one to get out of L.A. Apparently a renowned racist back in the day. John Wayne. Yeah, yeah. did you know that? I didn't know that, but I'm A 1971 surprised. interview with Playboy magazine oh. in which Wayne states, <laughs> I saw this. you know this? Yeah. This like resurfaced the year that ago. That he believes in white supremacy, did not feel guilty about the fact that five or ten generations ago, these people were slaves, quote, reported by the LA Times. I believe in white supremacy until the blacks are educated to a point of responsibility, Wayne said. I don't believe in giving authority and positions of leadership and judgment to irresponsible people. Wayne also used a homophobic slur in a reference to the movie Midnight Cowboy, made derogatory statements towards Native Americans. Apparently, one of the Oof. great movie stars of all time was Archie Bunker, essentially, in real, and had, in real life, <laughs> and had his name on the airport no longer. No longer the John Wayne Airport. People are making moves out there. I saw the Civil War is no longer called the Civil War. No, no longer. I don't, did Oregon, you see that? Oregon State. That's yeah, right. Oregon yeah. announced it. That, yeah. That's going to be called yeah. something else. You're up. So pe- people are making moves. Yeah. What about the Washington Redskins? For years, we've been calling for them to change. People have been calling for them to change the name. I don't know that Snyder will do that, but we'll see. One of the largest American Indian groups He's in the out. country is declaring that uh, war on the on the team because they say it's insanely offensive and NFL players should boycott. He said over and over again, "I will never change the name of this team. I will sell this team before I, I will never, over my dead body, change the name of the team." We'll see if he now with all that's happening in the world, right. whether. Dan Snyder will change. It's a different time. A new resort and casino is coming to Las Vegas, and I want to go. I'm ready. But you need to leave the kids at home. Okay. The Circa Resort and Casino. Ever heard of it? Circa. No. Circa. Plans to be the first ever adults-only 21 and over casino resort in Las Vegas history. 
Not only will it provide incredible luxury amenities, it also pays homage to the Vegas history with its vintage glamour style and its old school hospitality. Sounds great. 777 rooms, uniquely tapered, a 71 degree tower. You got to see the picture of this. I can't even describe the picture. It looks like the coolest building on the face of the earth. Okay. Looks so cool. Um, Each room is decked out vintage Vegas and the sports book is the biggest in the world. Wow. Like three story, a three story Vegas sports book, 21 and older, the new resort called Circa Resort and Casino. And I've seen pictures and I can, I can post them on my Facebook or on the Twitter on Twitter. And, uh, but it's beautiful. How many, how many people from the Midwest are going to want to book a room there and then accidentally book Circus Circus? <laughs> and get wildly different, by the way. That, a little bit different. <laughs> that is not 21 a and over. A little bit different. <laughs> you see Sasha Baron Cohen yeah. was in Olympia? Yeah. Olymp- the capital Singing of Washington? Singing songs or something? Like pretending to be at a right wing oh. at a huge right wing rally in Olympia and he got on stage and started singing something like that? He's the greatest. Do I have that right? Yes. He's the okay. greatest troll of all time. Yeah, I don't know much about him. So he, well you saw I don't know who he is. You really. saw Borat. I know, I never saw it. Oh, really? I know he's Borat, but I don't, I don't know much about it. So him. he went undercover at a, at a right wing militia event held in Olympia and he started belting out hateful, a hateful racist song oh. and the crowd was more than happy to sing along, some of them. He's just making stuff up like Hey there, what you gonna do? We're gonna chop them up like the Saudis do. <laughs> right. Uh, hey, Fauci, what you gonna do? We're gonna give him the Wuhan flu. I mean, just like the most hateful racist stuff you could ever say. And, and no one recognized him? No, he was I don't know that I would complete disguise. I mean, he had like overalls, oh. like looking like a compl- like a farmer, essentially. <laughs> and, he, and he's getting people to sing. He was up there for eight minutes. Oh. Yeah. So apparently he made a big donation to this group. Yeah. Got himself, him and his band on stage. Yeah. And then after it was too late, the damage had been done. They tried to pull the plug on him. Yeah. So some people were like, what's this guy doing? But he had his he had a security team keeping them away. He's, he must be filming a new movie. I can't wait. I'm sure it's going to be hilarious. And then he had an ambulance waiting for him. That was his getaway car. I don't Get know. out of here. Yeah, he had an ambulance, and he got in the ambulance and, and escaped. And somebody filmed all this? Yeah. Can oh, we yeah, watch all this? Yeah, there's multiple filmings of it. Yeah, there's, a, there's an eight-minute one on YouTube of him listening. you got to hear these lyrics. He's, he's, <laughs> he's spewing out, and people are singing along with him. It's crazy. Oh, God. Yeah. Uh, I got a couple RIPs. I got a couple rest in pieces. How okay. do you like that? I'm ready. Are you ready? Do you want to go first? Do you have rest in pieces today? I don't. I do. I have two. Rest in peace. To the 83 Microsoft stores. Oh, that's... Did you read the story? It's over. Yeah, I saw that. It's all over. But are they going to keep a few flagships, maybe like one in New York or Seattle? I heard they were going to keep a couple, but they're going to turn them into something other than like retail stores. They're going to be like experiences or something, almost like museums or or educational. But the, the, the idea, the retail idea, the Microsoft retail stores, like the one at Bell Square and all the... They're done. They're all closed and they're not opening up. You ever been in one? Many, 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 many times. I I can't believe they ever made any money. It's 13-year-olds playing video games all day long, (laughs) playing Minecraft on the machines while their parents are shopping. Nobody ever bought anything at a Microsoft store, apparently. I think that they were trying to hang on. There's a new, trust me, ask Max, ask Max. There's a new um, Xbox coming out. Oh, yeah, there is. Did you know that? Of course. Okay, so there's yeah. a. I think they were trying to hang on. I think the stores were trying oh. to hang on, but uh, now with the pandemic and all yeah. the all the businesses are lost and all the all the malls are closed, it's uh, it's not going to work out. So yeah. no more no more Microsoft stores across like the hall from the Apple store. Yeah, right. 
just another thing Microsoft was late to. <laughs> like another, hey, we should have our own store like Apple. And then the other RIP that I have is a guy by the name of Milton Glazer. You wouldn't recognize his name. I didn't. He died at the age of 91. He was known in the 1970s as somebody who scribbled down in the back of a cab, I heart New York. Oh, wow. He created the I love New York Whoa. Logo. Please tell me he got paid. In the backseat. He got, well, actually he did it for free. He did it pro bono. He did it for free. And um, I don't know, ultimately, I'm sure he got business out of this, but the 91-year-old designer of the I Love New York, it's the I Heart NY logo, dead at the age of 91. Wow. I you want to know that. I know I would want to know that. I, I really <laughs> I really just hope he got paid. If you read about the guys that created Superman and how they didn't get paid, it always makes me sad when you hear that kind of stuff. All right, if, speaking of sad, it's a sad day in the state of Wisconsin as we knew this day would eventually come. Hmm. There's been a COVID-19 breakout at Cruisin' Chubby's Gentleman's Club in Wisconsin Dells. Here we go. According to the Juneau County Health Department. <laughs> so far, there are two confirmed cases, and if you visited the club between June 10th and 14th, you may want to quarantine. Turns out, it's not the first time someone's been exposed in that club. Uh, Here's to a quick recovery and hopefully, <laughs> hopefully a happy ending to the story. Okay. Still unclear what stage the victims are at at this point, but it's most likely the main stage. <laughs> Stiff penalties coming? That's right. <laughs> are you finished? Yeah, I, I have one about an elderly man who took a dip in a pond, but I don't even know if I can read this one. Go ahead. Try it. An elderly man was left in agony after a leech entered into his body oh. through the place where number one comes out of, and the leech drank a pint of blood from his oh. internal organs and doubled in size. Whoa. Are these true stories that you read? Are you making these stories up? Well, A, I'm not good enough to make this up. <laughs> I, 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 B, like they said in Westworld, if you can't tell, if, if you don't know, okay. does it really matter? Okay. No, but I'm getting them off of you know. Doctors in Cambodia say the patient went for a dip without any clothes. Without any clothes. This is a Cambodian story. Yes, it is. Well, you're tied. I I get the daily Cambodian paper. Yeah, every day I get it on my my doorstep. So he jumped in a pond when the thing slipped. How elderly are we talking about, Hotshot? It doesn't say. It doesn't. But scans showed that the parasite had already wounded parts of the man's internal organs with its sharp teeth. Yeah. How how does that make you? Yeah. Right. Have fun jumping in that lake, or maybe at least put trunks on to give yourself a chance. So uh, the removal process was complicated, uh, but the because the, the, oh, the leech has God. swollen in size after taking in all that blood, it sucked from the man. So there you go. Be careful when you're swimming in ponds. Did we decide old '98 Tom Harmon? Yeah, I think so. 1940 Heisman Trophy winner, World War II veteran, World War II yeah. veteran and pilot, NFL sportscaster, father of a legend, father-in-law of a legend. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Uh, (laughs) Thank you for correcting me. Episode old 98, Tom Harmon is in the books. 